This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here. Hope you're having a great day as you're uh, making your way to work or just, you know, hanging out about the house, doing all your house stuff. Top of the morning to you. Hey, high five day. Today's the day that, uh, ooh, ow. It's a sacred tradition that has been used to celebrate remarkable events in our day. And, uh, you know, it's where you just throw out your hand, give each other a little, a little slap of the hand. High five day. Just try it. When you walk into the office, walk into your boss, put your hand out there and say, high five. See if they uh, oblige. It's a great, it's a great tradition. You see it a lot in the, uh, the playoffs. In fact, a lot of good stuff going on. Like? Oh, I just, I just feel really happy. A, I went and test drove a car and uh, ready to buy a new car. But then the, 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 the sales guy threw me a curveball. He said, why don't you try this car? Did he go, here's some fuzzy dice. Yeah, I'll get you some fuzzy. So I tried another car that I had never, ever thought about. Tesla? Buying. Did you no, I didn't drive I, a Tesla? I didn't drive a test drive a Tesla. No. They wouldn't even let you on the lot, would no, they? No, no. Like way too expensive. But so now I'm, I'm confused. Do I buy this other car that's a little nicer? Mm. For about the same price as my other car. Huh. So I don't know what to do. But it's exciting. This is exciting times. Was it a Yugo? Yeah. Do you remember the Yugo? Those are nice cars. But it was a Yugo Turbo. Ooh. Mm-hmm. The Turbo option was always really It has ludicrous speed. <laughs> oh, it, he's, a, he's a good rapper. Great rapper. It's the Yugo Ludicrous brand. Mm. It's really nice. It's got like wood paneling on the side. And when you hit ludicrous speed... It just falls apart, and all you're doing is riding a seat. Just bouncing down the road. Tons of fun. High five on that one. So now you're confused again. Ow. I'm confused again, except I'm buying a car by this weekend. Remember when I bought a car a while back? Yeah. You were talking then about buying a car. Okay. Just so we But then I I just love my car because everything is working nicely on it. Hmm. So. So how do you know how to trust those guys at the dealerships? You don't. You don't. No. This what? guy won't take his sunglasses off, so I'm like, something shady about you. Okay, what about the service department people at the dealerships? Uh, yeah, you can trust them. When they come back with all these diagnostics that say, you know, your brake pads are basically metal to metal. Well, that's actually probably not a – that's probably fairly obvious, right? You'd probably notice that. You say, show me. Well, show me the money. You never know because people will take out the air filter and they'll say, look how filthy oh, this yeah. is and it's totally white. Yeah. But that's that's a different – I don't know. Last pl- – I went got an oil change and the guy showed me. He goes, look, it's clean. You don't need a new one. Then he put it back in. Mine had leaves. That never happens. Mine had leaves in it and hair yeah, well. from somebody. <laughs> I must have hit something. <laughs> it was in my air filter. And he's like, you know you're breathing this because this is your interior air filter. And I'm like, ah. Wow. He goes, you want me to change it out? I'm like, I'm good. I'm, I'll breathe it another couple. I like huffing nature. It's great. Another thousand miles. Uh, also, um, lots going on today. We're going to be talking about productivity and the art of productivity, your competitive advantage. We have a great guest coming up who um, I think has cornered the market on productivity. Mm. 
He's got a really interesting life story as well. And uh, we'll talk about that. Plus, I want to talk a little bit about some night surfing. I guess it's all the rage now. Like you're you're in your your full body of armor. You've got your sword and everything. No, no, no. And you're no, out no. on the waves. No, like like nighttime. Oh, okay. nighttime surfing. So you 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 know when everybody's coming in from the ocean. There's the New York Times just did a big piece on this. There's a lot of people that are actually walking out toward the ocean with their boards at in dark, and then they get glow sticks, and they get their surf gear on, and then they surf at night. The glow sticks take it to a whole different level. Yeah. Haven't they seen the movie Jaws, though? No, exactly. Haven't they learned their lesson? What's the other shark movie that was out last year? Uh, The Shallows. Have you seen The Shallows? Oh, yeah. I have. Who on earth would (laughs) would surf at night? But apparently it's happening. Hmm. In San Diego, it's all the craze. Everyone's doing it. They get LED lights. They get out there. They surf with their LED light. I guess that's so the fish can know where they are. I guess. Cray, cray. Yeah, right a, a solid target. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we, we, I want to talk a little bit about that because, I mean, of all the things you can do. I mean, I guess it's cool and I'm pro- it's probably really fun to watch. But Oh, yeah, from a distance. But have you ever been like an, on, in a, on a cruise at night and just looking over the railing? And it's yeah. terrifying. And what happens if you go under? Mm. Who's going to find you? Nobody. And I'm sure all the lifeguards are gone. Right? There's not going to have lifeguards at night. No. Well, especially not on a cruise ship (sighs) out in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. But you can can get colored glow sticks, so you can go green, you can go orange. It's pretty hip. So you have a couple of options for colors. So it's kind of a rave on a surfboard. You just have to decide how you want the shark to take you. Do you want want the shark to take you with a green glow stick or an orange glow stick? Or like no glow stick? I'm waiting for the movement that goes out there with their full body armor. I'll join then. Yeah, that's that's a hard the one. The night-night surfing. That, that one's never really taken off. We'll get to all that fun, but first let's go to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Bill O'Reilly released a statement Wednesday afternoon lamenting his firing from Fox News over several sexual harassment allegations, old and new, that have dogged him and the network and led to major advertising boycott. Uh, it's tremendously disheartening that we part ways due to completely unfounded claims, but that is the unfortunate reality many of the, us in the public eye must live with today. Fox will have a new primetime lineup in place as of Monday night. Quick changes happening over there. Wow, that's fast. Uh, they're moving Tucker Carlson into whatever the time slot Bill O'Reilly was in, moving other people around. Did you hear, I wonder if that's why Chaffetz is leaving. Because he's actually, a lot of people are saying he's going to do something in the communications field. We'll see. And Fox has been, I guess, talking. CNN had a, uh, a, a nugget of information here saying, Have you ever stopped to consider how the world would have been different if Roger Ailes had just given Gretchen Carlson the new contract that she wanted? Because she went in for her contract, they didn't give her a new contract, and then she said, okay, here's some recordings of Roger Ailes saying bad things and nasty things about me during other contract negotiations, which led to his investigation, and then and he stepped down, uh, and, and then, then the they went after started, yeah. and it started, it was just the next domino, and you got Ugh. Bill O'Reilly, and so, if she, they, she was the 2 p.m. afternoon anchor, middle of the day, give her the money, and none of this happened, possibly. Give her the money. So who knows? But huh. that, so far, we'll see. Uh, we'll see where this goes as it continues to to turn. But even last night, it was called the factor 
not the factor with Bill O'Reilly. Really? They removed him from all imaging from the show. Wow. The CIA and the FBI are conducting a manhunt for a person believed to have leaked the CIA documents to WikiLeaks. We had a guest on last week about WikiLeaks. Yeah. The two agencies are reportedly searching for CIA employees or contractor who had physical access to leaked material. The person is believed to be behind the leak of a set of documents WikiLeaks published in March that included top-secret information on the CIA hacking tools. CIA Director Mike Pompeo commented on the leaks last week, calling WikiLeaks a non-state hostile intelligence service often abetted by state actors like Russia. Ooh. It all goes back to Russia. Speaking of uh, the Chaffetz situation yesterday, former never-Trump presidential candidate Evan McMullen is considering running for the Utah congressional seat currently occupied by Jason Chaffetz. The source close to him told uh, the Daily Beast last month in a chat with supporters on Reddit where all great political news is broken. McMullen was asked whether he would run for Chaffetz's seat in 2018. He said, it is likely I will seek public office again. It's possible that I will challenge Chaffetz or Senator Hatch. But there are a lot of factors that go into that decision. The speculation over the Utah congressional seat triggered yesterday when Chaffetz announced that he would not be running for re-election in 2018. Surprising move considering he holds the chairmanship of the normally powerful House Oversight Committee. This from Politico says Chaffetz is likely the first ever uh, first of several lawmakers who could retire before the midterm election. One GOP lobbyist noted that many I have talked to are contemplating their futures. It could be the biggest threat to GOP majority in the House. Wow. Because they just decide this isn't my... Nothing can happen. It's so polarized, everything's blocked, and you just get vilified every step of the way. Well, you go back there, you meet a lot of people, and then you realize, man, all the money is behind the scenes of this thing. In other news, a Chaffetz campaign arm has registered the websites Jason Chaffetz 2028 and Jason 2028, which speculation could be your presidential run or who knows. Uh, 2028? 2028. Hmm. What will you be doing in 2028? And finally, just months after spotting seven Earth-sized exoplanets that we talked about yeah. that could support life, scientists have discovered yet another potentially habitable planet. In a study published Wednesday in the journal Nature, researchers unveiled LHS 1140b. Oh, it sounds weird. A super-Earth exoplanet that uh, amassed nearly seven times that of Earth and may offer the best opportunity ever to find alien life, according to Wired magazine. Hmm. The planet, located some 39 light-years away from Earth, is believed to orbit within a red dwarf star's habitable zone, meaning it could hold liquid water. Moreover, because the planet regularly passes in front of the star, scientists have been able to measure its mass and size, which has led them to believe the planet is rocky, not gaseous. Ooh. Which is a good quality to have, if yeah. you think about it. I mean, if, yeah, if you've got to choose between the two. Once telescopes currently in development are launched, so we don't even have equipment functioning at the moment that can see this planet, but someday, soon but, we will. Yeah, we know it's there. Scientists are able to, uh, will be able to watch the planet's path to see if its atmosphere contains carbon and oxygen, which would lead to further possible signs of life. Okay. So here's the question. 39 um, light years away. Do they all know something we don't know? Because wow. they've now, what, found eight planets? Well, there's more than that, but yes. That are, recently, yeah. eight planets, yeah. Is there a reason we should be looking for other planets that we could make an Earth on? I mean... Like, do are we going to be leaving this Earth? Is, do they know they're, something? I, they're more looking for alien life, not necessarily a place we can go colonize. It seems like we have more of these stories since President Trump's been in. But if you think about it, <laughs> 
if we were on other planets, if yeah. aliens attacked here, we'd have other places where humans were, we would save the species. Why do we think aliens would attack? Because that's all they ever do. Well, but don't you think, honestly, aliens would see us not really as threatening? Because we're like pretty... <laughs> we're going to be refugees. Yeah. We're going to be fleeing to their planets. Yes. You know, there's that movie Get Out that came out this year? Yeah, yeah. That's what that movie's actually about. A refugee? Get Out of oh. Planet Earth. Scary. I didn't know that was, was what that was about. Yeah. I thought it was about get out of the town. Yeah. Well, it was like very. It was like a very buried subplot. Oh wow! Yeah, the subtext. It almost seems like it was so buried that no one's ever talked about it, or it's not it, a thing. It may or may not have been my interpretation of it. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. May. Um, okay. Interesting. Uh, Serena Williams pregnant. Apparently, she won the Australian Open pregnant. She won a Grand Slam pregnant. If she's tw- she says she's 20 weeks pregnant. If that's the case, she won the Australian Open in January pregnant. And and one of the most winningest of all time in Grand Slams, right? Yeah. My wife, with both of her pregnancies, within like the first week, she's like, I don't feel good. And then she just kind of thought it was a cold. What did you do when you were pregnant? Me? I really say I, – I've – I, pregnancy was great for me. Yeah, I didn't. I felt really good about the whole process. All but the did way you win through. a Grand Slam? No, I just went to work and me either. Yeah, function. I didn't win normal. anything. I got, I got, I had these sympathy pains mm. that were just devastating. I feel like I, could, I was on the couch for days. I've been pregnant for like twenty years, and what I mean by that is, yeah, you what know, do you mean the the baby the the, the t- fat tapeworm? that I'm getting. You know, it's not going away. Yeah. I'm, my belly's just getting bigger over the last 20 years. Well, you know, they say you gain about five pounds per baby. So I'm not sure when this thing's coming out. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't joke because I've had recently some some offspring. Recently? Some, yeah. Some chips off the old block. Oh, right, right. I yeah. think you're lucky my wife doesn't listen because she recalls the first time you likened uh, – Passing your kidney stones to pregnancy, uh-huh. and uh, well, guess what? I think she said something like, "I'm going to punch him in the face." You know, you know what? Though, honestly, who uh, who told me this? My who was it? Uh, my doctor. No, it was a female doctor that's had. Oh, oh no, yeah, it was a female nurse that, at my doctor's office that has had kidney stones and a child, and she said, pain wise, kidney stones hurt more. <gasps> Were you doped up? Right there. Were you doped up for pe- the passing? No, no but Did by the way, that is the first time I was ever doped up. Because maybe maybe she was doped up for the pregnant for the delivery. No, you know what she said? She said it's it, the the ureter. Ureter. I think it's called the ureter. I don't it, think so. Is, I think it is. It. <laughs> I don't think it's ureter. Careful. Um, but it's it's such a tiny little tube. Yeah. With a lot of pain associated. Can't we just say both of them are painful? Now, by the way. Why do we have to gauge who went through the most pain to achieve whatever outcome? Right. Yeah. Exactly. And by the way, Can't we just uh, I have a friend who had both simultaneously. See, Actually, just... her, her kidney stones induced labor. labor. Ureter. Ureter. <laughs> now we've gone to the internet you... pronunciation website. I don't think the internet <laughs> knows how to say it. Ureter. Uh-oh. Hey, um, huh. back to the Sharks real fast. Yeah. Huge rewind to the beginning. Of but the if this episode. can happen. Ureter. 
Huh? Uh-huh, exactly. Whoa, so oh, we're wow. both right. No, actually, you're so still using it's internet. It's more of a regional distinction. Go ahead. Um, Sharks, glow-in-the-dark sticks. If we can, if maybe that's the way you revamp and create a lot of new sports, is okay. you just do them all at night. And then you add glow sticks. Yeah. Hmm. So you can do anything with glow sticks in the dark or and just make it more exciting. maybe have the entire uniform glow-in-the-dark. No, you crack them open and you, you spread it all out over the, the, water. S- the surfboard and the water. It's a great idea. Or we just go gator hunting with glow sticks at night. That sounds safe. You go deer hunting with glow sticks at night. Everything in the dark at night. Don't you think? I mean, if you can surf at night, you can do anything at night. Makes it, I mean, are you looking for spectators or is this sort of like just personal entertainment? I think it could be. Because spectator-wise, it's difficult to see things in the dark. But is it? No, it is. Uh, don't if you, you think do the night, night vision thing, it just Indy 500? Yeah. At night. Just no. headlights. No. Is that the Close upcoming sticks. sequel to Indiana Jones? Mm-hmm. Indy 500? At night. Hmm. Good stuff. Um, we will uh, take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about productivity and what is your competitive edge. Interesting uh, insight uh, from our next guest with a really interesting life story as well. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, our next guest is Jim Stovall. He is the author of the book, The Art of Productivity. And uh, he joins us today. Jim has, uh, has had a lot of success as an author, an athlete, an investment broker, an entrepreneur, while dealing with the challenge of blindness. During his remarkable life, Jim has been a national champion, Olympic weightlifter, as well as the author of more than 30 books. And uh, today he's here to help us all understand how to be more productive and help us find our competitive edge. Jim Stovall, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. What a, what an interesting uh, life you've had. You you seem to have touched it all from basically founding a uh, an Emmy award winning television network um, to work doing a being an Olympic weightlifter. All these books you've written. How do you define productivity? Productivity is getting the things done we need to get done every day that takes us along that progression toward our life goal, toward a meaningful life goal. Is it, is it, do you think of it, Jim, is it, it's getting the stuff done, I guess it's also figuring out what needs to be done and what's right. the right thing, right? Oh, that's critical. I mean, you got to do the right thing next and then the next thing right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's a lot of people making great progress moving the wrong way, and we can't confuse activity with productivity. It's like the, the little hamster running around on the wheel in the cage, a tremendous amount of activity and no productivity. Is, so how, how do we, if, if we want to make our lives better, and I'm just thinking of the average listener out there that's sitting there thinking, well, I want to... I want to accomplish stuff. I want to become something in my life. Where do you tell them to begin? Begin with specificity. What specifically would you like to accomplish? You know, these vague someday aisle goals, uh, you know, they, they may be tempting. They are pipe dreams. They're out there in the future. But until you add some specificity to it, 
uh, you're really not going to be able to be productive, and uh, because there's no urgency, it never it never comes down to something I got to do today. Then once you have that goal, then you start looking at what are the barriers between here and there, and uh, and who can help me get there? What steps can I take? And then you know it's motivation, communication, and implementation. Do I have the drive to get there? Can I communicate with the people I need to? And implementation. When it's all said and done, we live in a world that. Uh, Frankly, Matt, there's a lot said and very little done. Yeah. Oh, don't you hate that? And and the problem is we we also I, I think we all have this weird um, concept of what success is. I mean, to be successful just for success sake is it, it it's kind of it seems meaningless. It seems empty. We we almost have to know what we're passionate about. What what is our unique contribution? Matt, that is a powerful point. Most people miss. They are uh, they are seeking something because their wife thought they ought to, or their husband's been nagging them, or the neighbors thought, or they're trying to keep up with somebody, or whatever. No, they don't own that goal. It's not their goal. It's somebody else's goal. And and sooner or later, if you're not pursuing your true passion, you will fail because you'll be competing with people that are. And uh, you know, frankly, they'll get up earlier, work harder because they love what they're doing. And you're looking for some result that uh, is really there to impress somebody else, not yourself. Yeah. And then uh, then I can almost see if it's not your goal, you're a, probably more likely to just never follow through on it. It's not going to drive you. Or if it's too empty, you'll achieve it maybe quickly. But then, then what? You Then you have to keep doing the goal over and over. It seems like in your life, you you didn't even have, it doesn't seem like, this kind of natural path that made everything make sense. I, it doesn't seem, it, it almost, I sense from your bio that you were, you kind of, you've been able to make a lot of things that were difficult pretty amazing simply by accepting the challenge and going and, and making something out of it. Well, a lot of it comes from not knowing what you don't know. I mean, I didn't know that was hard to do till I did it. But, uh, you know, my path started, I wanted to be a professional football player, and then I was diagnosed uh, during a routine physical to play another season of football. I was diagnosed with a condition that uh, would result in my blindness, and I realized uh, pretty quickly there's no uh, blind guys in the NFL. Uh, a few referees were worried about, but no <laughs> players that are blind, and yeah. I wasn't sure, you know, what I was going to do. So... I had to start living my life on purpose, and I came up with a long list of things I would never be able to do, but in the midst of that, I came up with a pretty decent list of stuff I could do. And then you just started doing it, but I'm I'm assuming you still then went on to become a national Olympic weightlifting champion, Yeah, and you realized you you, you could do that blind. Well, you know, I, after... uh, not being able to play football that first season, I went to the state fair and I'm wandering around there and, uh, you know, wondering what I could do. And they had an exhibition from the previous Olympic Games. So I watched the gymnasts and the runners and I, it was fun. And then these weightlifters came out and I looked at them and I had always trained with weights for, for to play ball. But I, I looked at those guys and I thought, you know, that's something a guy could do even if he was losing his sight. And uh, that kind of became my next thing. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, too many people are waiting for all the lights to be green before they leave the house. The next thing is good enough. I mean, the next thing is the next step. And did you, um, I guess you take it on, you take it on as a new challenge, then you reach a high level of, of expertise in it, and then the next challenge comes. Yeah, and it, and you go from success to success to success, and you can leverage one into the next one. 
What when you look at Jim, kind of the younger generations today, what do you what do you wish they knew, or what do you wish you had known back you know at that age? I wished I had known that uh, the big regrets we have in life are not the mistakes we made; it's the things we don't try. I would have tried more things earlier, and. Uh, you know, but uh, we're a lot of sheep following the leader, and when you get to the front of the pack, you realize there's not even a leader here. Mm. And too many people, you know, they go to college because we got out of high school, so we go to college, so we get a job, so we get married, so we have a kid, and you wake up and you, you realize, I've just been on this track, and uh, and no one's, you know, I haven't really given any thought to who am I and where am I going and what am I supposed to be doing here? Yeah. It's so true. And um, as I look in, at the list of your books, you probably – did you ever think you'd be an author? Did you ever think you'd win the International Humanitarian of the Year Award? Did, I mean, were these even thoughts? Oh, Matt, when I was an athlete, I mean, the thought of writing a book I, – I don't know that I ever read a book. <laughs> and when I could read with my eyes like you do, yeah, I don't think I ever read a whole book cover to cover. After losing my sight, I discovered audio books in the National Library for the Blind – and high-speed listening, and I read a book every day. There hasn't been a day in the last 28 years I haven't read a whole book. And I listen extremely fast, and becoming a reader turned me into a writer. That's cool. And so interesting. And the idea that you lose your eyesight, but you you then actually seem to have picked up on having other skills and and other things like high-speed reading, you then started an entire network for the blind. Talk about that. Well, I, I, you know, after losing my sight, I moved into this little 9 by 12 foot room in the back of my house. I thought I'd never leave again. And sitting there in that little room, which had been our TV room before I'd lost my sight, uh, I got really bored. And one day I put on an old, uh, pro, an old movie that I'd seen a bunch of times, and I was able to follow it for a while. But then uh, somebody shot somebody, and somebody screamed, and the car sped away, and I forgot what happened. And I said, somebody ought to do something about that. And... Uh, you know, Matt, the whole world's praying for a great idea, and they trip over one about three times a week. The only thing you've got to do to have a great idea is go through your daily routine, wait for something bad to happen, and say, how could I have avoided that? And the answer is a great idea. And the only thing you've got to do to turn that into a great business is ask one more question. How can I help other people avoid that problem? And the world will give you fame and fortune and anything you might want if you'll just care about them and solve their problems. So we invented a system so that the 13 million blind and visually impaired Americans and their family and millions more around the world could access movies and television. And it's, and it's, a, it's a narrative TV. Yeah, we add one more soundtrack between, between the, the voices of the character. Matt slowly walks into the studio and hmm. sits in his chair. He pulls the microphone over and starts his show. Then you talk. and the, So we add that in between the dialogue. And it, it's available on all the major networks. It's in your home now. There's a button on your TV you probably never used hmm. called Second Audio Program or Languages or whatever it is on your particular set or on your uh, remote, and most primetime shows are available and a lot of others, and we do first-run movies, and we do a lot of educational programs for uh, blind and visually impaired kids in school. So it's become a, uh, a huge gift to me to be able to do that, and, uh, and a huge business. How powerful, and again, started by you thinking, seeing a need, seeing a pain that wasn't being met, and then helping and finding a way to reach out and serve others. Absolutely. I mean, it all starts with a need. Find a need and fill it.
and, and then going back to your plan, then, you know, establish your purpose, identify how you're going to do it, what is it you're trying to accomplish, and uh, and then work the goal from there. Absolutely. Boy, good stuff, Jim. Let's take a break and uh, come back. We're talking with Jim Stovall. you got to go check out his website, jimstovall.com. He's the uh, author of the book, The Art of Productivity, Your Competitive Edge. Inspiring human being, folks, uh, that um, just keeps pushing, keeps doing what he has to do. He's been the International Humanitarian of the Year, uh, which is a really high honor. President Reagan has received that and others. We'll come back, continuing the journey, helping you be the good in the world. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us online, uh, Jim Stovall's here, and uh, the author of the book, The Art of Productivity, plus, by the way, another 30 books, including um, The Ultimate Gift, one that became uh, a movie, and um, we'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, Jim Stovall, he is an author, an athlete, investment broker, entrepreneur. During his remarkable life, Jim was has been a national champion Olympic weightlifter, as well as uh, the recipient of the uh, 2000 International Humanitarian of the Year Award, which is uh, joining Jimmy Carter, Nancy Reagan, Mother Teresa, just to name a few, and also is the co-founder of the Narrative Television Network, which has now helped uh, 13 million blind people and their families be able to fully enjoy uh, movies and television. So we're honored to have you, Jim. Thank you again for being with us. Well, it's an honor to be with you. And we're talking about uh, your book, The Art of Productivity, um, we were just looking during the break at your at the book, uh, The Ultimate Gift, that you wrote that then turned into a 20th Century Fox home video. So now you've, you've actually created a script that went all the way to the movies. Yeah, I actually, uh, I have had to date uh, seven of my novels turned into movies. Uh, the Ultimate Gift uh, turned into a trilogy with James Garner and Abigail Breslin, and then The Ultimate Life with Peter Fonda, and then we just last year did the Ultimate Legacy with Raquel Welch, and uh, then I wrote The Lamp we did with Louis Gossett Jr. and uh, and several other movies, and we just finished a uh, a documentary about the life of Napoleon Hill. It'll be out next year. Wow, now Jim, you know you're blind, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm the guy that uh, I write books I can't read that are turned into movies I can't see. That's me. It's amazing. But then the narrative, what's it like watching your movie on your narrative television? That has been a fascinating. That's when I knew it all came full circle. I'm in this little 9 by 12 foot room, and uh, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could make movies accessible to blind people? And then I start this television service, and out of that, I'm asked to start doing speaking engagements, and I'm on a tour, and... Uh, Robert Schuler and Dr. Dennis Whaley twist my arm to write my first book, and I, I write six or seven books, and by that time I'd written everything I knew and a few things I only kind of suspected. So when the publishers kept wanting more books, I figured I'd better make something up, and I wrote a novel, and uh, that changed the world for me because uh, uh, my first novel got turned into a major movie and uh, huge theatrical release and then DVD and international and uh 
uh, just incredible. The franchise has grossed over $100 million around the world, and it keeps going. Mm. And that opened other doors to me. And, uh, you know, amazing things happen when you take the first step. Yeah. What, what advice would you give to somebody that maybe was just given a diagnosis that that they're going to be blind or they have cancer or that their life's going to be, you know, changed? Matt, we're all only as big as the smallest thing it takes to divert us from where we're called to be, from where we are supposed to be. And I don't care whether it's me being blind or someone having marriage problems or financial difficulties or a physical problem, whatever the case may be. But I know that the biggest dream any of us ever had in our whole life is alive and well, and we were equipped with everything it takes to get from here to there. So whatever you think are your disabilities, somewhere there are enough abilities to get you from here to there. And for every person defeated by one of those things, whether it's blindness, whether it's a divorce, whether it's bankruptcy, whatever it may be, for every person that's defeated, I'll show you another person that took that same incident and used it as a springboard to get everything they ever wanted out of this life. Yeah, and what, what do you sense is the difference? I, I think it is just the, the, the beginning of the belief that it's possible. You know, you have to open your mind to the, the, it's possible I could go do something else. You know, because too many people, the only thing that will allow you to sit there and mire yourself down in, in nothingness is the belief that it's impossible. But if you just start with that little spark of, what if it were possible? You don't have to know how to get there, or what am I going to do, how am I going to do it, where am I going to get the money? No, no. Is it, is, is it the barest possibility that, that the Creator that made heaven and earth and everything will ever do and know and have, and put a dream inside of you and, and equipped you with everything you need? And I've never seen it, it, it not happen, so it's, it's at least possible for you and everyone listening to us right now. And uh, I believe that. I'll never be convinced otherwise. And I've seen thousands and thousands of people make it happen in their lives. It's um, you seem to be able to see, Jim, better than most people that see. Probably. And I'm probably not uh, uh, just distracted by all the clutter everybody else is looking at. And it may be simpler that way. I don't know. Yeah. Do you think do you think um, your uh, blindness, did it impact your ability to to feel, to empathize, and to write? Because you're an incredible writer, and do you think there was any connection? Probably. I mean, those things were always there, but uh, it probably made me focus on what I had more. And, uh, and that's what people with challenges have. You know, when one door closes, another one always opens. And that's an old saying, and you think, well, that's trite. But, you know, we're, we're all confused and frustrated by not knowing which way to go and which path to do. And uh, sometimes we just sit and do nothing because we don't know, know which way to go. Well, when a couple of doors close on you, it makes it easier to know what to do. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, if, if the ship's sinking, you don't worry that much <laughs> about the lifeboat. You get in. <laughs> You just get in. Yeah, but it doesn't look nice. Um, do, you, do you get a sense that you would have been this successful without that challenge? I, I would have had to have something else trigger it for me, that, that, that burning desire to, to get out of that. I would have had to have something else do that. And, and everybody out there, those triggers come all the time. 
and uh, you know we look back on them. And you know when we go through our lives, we it feels like chaos day after day. Like where am I going? What am I doing? Whatever. But every once in a while, you 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 get to the mountaintop and you achieve something, and then you look back at that chaos and you see this divine order. And you realized, as weird as that was, there's no way, there's no other way I'd have gotten here. And then you see this plan in action. Yeah, it's. Um, do you did you do you do you have a good a strong relationship with a higher power? Do you do you go there a lot? Oh God, it, you know I grew up in a, in a religious household, and that's great until you have a crisis, and then. When I was diagnosed with blindness, I went from religion to relationship. Oh, beautiful. And I said, God, you better be real, and you better be real right now. And uh, I'm not hoping you're real. I'm depending, I'm leaning right on it right now. This is it. And, uh, and then you start to have success, and that old line always comes back to me. Because when you have a little success, and then you think, uh, the faith, the, the grace that brought us safe this far is the grace that will lead us home. Hmm. And he didn't bring me here to let me fail. And, uh, no, I just, I believe the God that made heaven and earth and everything we'll ever do and know and have put That's a dream beautiful. inside of me and a calling on my life, just like you and everyone listening to us right now. And the only thing you got to do is sit right where you are and say, yeah, I'm going to do that. I don't know how to do it, when to do it, where to do it, who to do it with. I don't know anything about it, but yeah, I'm going to do that. And then your whole world changes, you know. People listening to us right now may be saying, yeah, I'm going to do that. I've, I've had that dream for 20 years. I'm going to do that. They'll remember 20 years from now that they, they won't remember they were listening to me or Matt on the right. radio, but they'll remember that's the day I said yes to the big dream. And your whole world changes. I mean, for me, it was that day I walked out of that 9 by 12 foot room. I literally thought as a blind person, I'm never leaving this room again. I had my radio telephone and my tape recorder, and I'm never leaving this room. And the thought of traveling millions of miles and speaking to millions of people and running a television network and writing books and making movies and talking to Matt on the radio, hmm. that would have seemed as foreign to me as going to the moon. And the first day I believed in the dream, I didn't make millions of dollars or write a best-selling book. I walked 50 feet to my mailbox, and that was the day that changed my life. Because uh, I don't care where you're going, it all starts with a beginning. And it starts with that dream, and if you have that dream inside of you, there's something you're supposed to do about it today. Maybe it's just make a call, read a book, learn more about it. And if you don't have that dream inside of you, uh, you need to seek your higher power and say, where is it? You didn't put me here for no reason. And sometimes it is that challenge. It's the failure. It, it's the hardship that might be the door. Right. It is. It is. It's just it's taking that first step. And uh, But, man, when, when your fear a failure is overcome by the fear of not trying. Like, okay, if I go outside that door, I could get hurt. I could fall down. I could be embarrassed. But if I stay here, I'm going to miss everything else that this life has to offer me. And I don't know that people uh, – I, I just look at you, Jim, and I think – so here's a guy that went from the 9 by 12 room and then went – first big trip was to the mailbox. But now you're a guy that gets in a car – uh, gets to the airport, gets to another state, gets in front of a hundred or fifteen thousand people, or ten thousand, or five thousand, or two thousand people, and delivers a presentation completely blind, and motivates, and then gets to the next hotel and does it again, and maybe gone for a week or two, and then back to his home. I mean, it's such a different person you've become. Yeah. Well, that that person was always in there. Yeah. But, totally. Uh, 
you know, uh, I mean, getting there, doing those things, those are all just details. The world belongs to the man or woman that's made a decision. And once you've made a decision to go, the de- everything else is just details. How am I going to do it? But, see, you don't want to get the how are you going to do it mixed up in the what are you going to do phase. Yeah. Otherwise, you limit yourself to what you're currently able to do. What? Heaven help any of us that, uh, that take on a goal that we know everything about and we know exactly how we're going to get there. Yeah. That, that is useless. I mean, you, you know, I, don't know, I don't care who you are or what you're in uh, listening to us today. There's a goal, a plan, a calling bigger for your life than you know how to do today. And I always remember that the image of Sir Edmund Hillary. He, he, he tried to climb Mount Everest and failed. And he raised money for his next attempt by giving speeches around the world about climbing Mount Everest. And he had a, a big portrait, a big picture of Mount Everest right behind him as he spoke. And he said, I failed to climb that mountain the first time, but I will stand on top of that summit. And then he would turn and talk to the mountain. He says, because you can't get any bigger and I can. Ah, that's so cool. And it's, I, I, um, what would you say is the, what's, what's the question you would suggest we ask to get to that purpose? Well, if you were writing your epitaph today, if you, if you were writing your obituary and say, this mattered to me, if my life is going to boil down to one thing I believed, one thing I did, one change I made, and if you had to do that right now, what would you do? And a lot of people, they get bogged down in the thought process, Matt, and they never get down to yeah. really making that. So I, I wrote a book about a story in a magic garage sale lamp, and you can have three things, but you have to decide in the next 30 seconds go. And I've seen that work so many times for so many people. Because if you say, well, what do you want to do in your life? I have no idea. Okay, you can have any three things you want. There's no way you're going to fail, but you got to tell them to me in the next 30 seconds. They get out of that thought process. Yeah, they just got to throw them and out. they get into the immediate intuition and inspiration. And you, you tap into a new source and you say, this, this, and this. Mm. That's such a great. Have you turned that one into a movie yet? Yeah, it's called The Lamp Stars oh, Lewis Gossett there you go. Yeah, Jr. no, I remember that. The Lamp. Yeah. Man alive. Uh, totally inspiring, Jim. As we wrap up, what if, if I asked you the one thing, um, I always want to know the one thing that, that makes the biggest difference for somebody to begin to be productive and, and kind of find themselves in life. What, what would you say is the one thing that everyone could do today? To, to, to get there. You change your life when you change your mind. I'm that same guy sitting in that little 9 by 12 foot room, broke and scared and depressed, and you've never met anybody as afraid and scared and broke with no possibility than me. I, I've never met anybody. And the only difference between that guy and this guy is I changed my mind. Because somehow in the process of losing my sight, I caught a vision of who I could be. Sight's a precious thing. It tells you where you are and what's around you. That's a wonderful thing. But it pales in comparison to vision, because vision tells you where you could be and what's possible. And uh, if you could capture a vision of who you are and what God planned for you in this world, you'll never go back to being that person again. So, so true. Jim Stovall, beautiful stuff. Thank you so much for your time, Jim. Be well. Honored to have you. Uh, JimStovall.com is the website. you got to go check it out. Incredible stuff. Again, do you feel the hope? Do you feel the spirit? Um, anybody, 
We can do it. Three things. What are the three things you would say that uh, you would you'd want? What are the three things you need? I'm telling you, there's hope in the world, and there's goodness in the world, and you're part of that goodness. As Jim kept saying, it's already in you. You don't need to go necessarily manifest it yet. First, just let your mind get soaking in on the fact that you're that amazing. You're that you have that much to offer. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. You know, you, you listen to a guy like Jim Stovall and you think, yeah, so motivating, right? So inspiring. And again, he makes so many wonderful points. Those That power is already in each of us. We just need to, uh, we need to see it. You change your mind, he says, you change your life. And um, so what are the thoughts that keep holding you back? What are the thoughts, the beliefs that, that make it so you can't succeed? And do you even know what they are? It's hard because how do you evaluate your thinking except with your own thinking, right? We've got to at some point, each of us, each and every one of us have to confront some of our most basic thought patterns that just don't work for us. And I, I truly believe um, this is one of the reasons why a little upsetting of the status quo is such a healthy thing for all of us. There's a there's an interesting theory in systems theory that it's called chaos theory. And if you would allow a little chaos into your life, it actually means we're going to be able to reorganize at higher levels. You know, upsetting the ant farm actually may re-energize the ants to go create a better path. A, a disaster, a national disaster, um, a diagnosis, the loss of someone near and dear to you, it changes you. We saw it in our own little local high school. Two beautiful teenage kids passed away in a tragic accident, and it changed the entire culture of the school. It changed the families in the neighborhoods. It changed people. Everybody was telling their parents, I love you. Uh, family mattered more. And it changes people. So if you're sitting out there and you're going through a struggle and you're sitting there, maybe you lost your job or you're wondering, you know, why you can't get pregnant or whatever you're struggling with, look at it as a doorway. This is an opportunity, as Jim taught us, to to now face it and, and have to go maybe create the relationship with a higher power. Instead of just going to the religion, go to the relationship with the higher power. Make sure you're connecting at that higher level. And I'm telling you. That's where the miracle begins. Um, it's not just it's not just motivational hype. This is this is real stuff. I see it every day, and we need the downtime to know of the good times. We need the struggles to find out who we really are, and uh, you know we sometimes need the fear to generate the faith, and we need the faith to allay the fear. It's powerful stuff, folks, and it's all part of our existence. It's why we're here. I truly believe we're here to learn. We're here to grow. That's why we do the show as well, to give you that hope. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Stick with us. Two more hours straight ahead.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy uh, Thursday to you. Happy Thursday, also high five day. The day you get a little high five. Ooh, that sounds less like a high five and more like a horse whip. What is that? Yep. High five. Walk into your boss, your friend, your neighbor, pull over, stick your hand out the window and say high five. When you go into McDonald's, high five. And see how that goes for you. Today, we got a great show for you. Um, we will do a little update on the dentist office. Both Jeffrey and I went to, to get our teeth cleaned. Different dentists just so happened we, have it, we had it on the same day. And from what I'm hearing, we had fairly different experiences. Sounds like they cleaned your teeth and then they cleaned your clock. They cleaned my clock. It was actually – it's just I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like the hook. I don't mind the hook. You're not supposed to use sharp things on your teeth. That's what they've told us forever. And the next thing you know, they're pulling out a sharp hook. Well, you're not supposed to because they want you to go to the office and uh, they want your money. Did uh, did your hygienist sit on your chest with a chisel and a hammer? No, it was very pleasant. Okay. They poked around in there. The dentist, who never does anything but gets all the money, yeah. uh, came in for five seconds like, everything looks great. And then, uh, excuse me, on my way, I'm getting a little emotional, but on my way out, they said, you're perfect, which is what I love to hear. Is that, is that? So. Oh, that's interesting. They didn't even say your teeth are perfect. They, they said, said you're, you're perfect. Is that why you were just getting emotional? Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I really needed to hear that yesterday. Mine just came in and said, not even close. That's all he said and walked out. He was like disgusted with me. Have you ever seen one of those dentists? At the cleaning, do anything other than come in and do no, exactly no, what well, the previous com- people well, did? Well, mine comes in. Yeah, mine comes in and then with the little hook, touches each tooth, checks each gum. And then, no, mine's awesome. But almost in disgust, rolls his eyes and says, Matt, you got to focus, man. Then he turns around and grabs the catalog of new boats he's going to buy. He's like, yeah. wow, Matt's really going to help me out with this one. They did refer me to someone else. I need, I'm going to... I'm going to have a special opportunity to meet another expert. Now, I did mention this during the break. Yeah. I don't mind the dentist, but the one thing I don't like is when they're taking x-rays mm-hmm. of my jaw and my teeth, and they jam those things in your mouth, yeah. and they say, clamp down, and they always poke into my gums. Yeah. That, to me, is the most painful thing. And, you know, they actually don't have to poke into your gums, but the people think it's really funny when they do. They just... They turn them the other way so that they're poking into your gums. This is just jabbed right in there. Mine, they used a new device on me this time where instead of changing, like, instead of, like, putting, uh, I don't know, X-ray film in my mouth, now they have just a little kind of computer chip that they put in and take a picture. And it. they use the same chip and they just put it and move it around my mouth and bada boom, bada bing. They've got five or four or five pictures of my mouth. Gives you the same level of exposure. But it's all digitized. Right. And now they know exactly where you are at all times because there was a tracking device. Yeah, they inserted a device. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they did. 
Because they, they were working my gums like they it's were. It's Bluetooth for your tooth. Mm-hmm. Ah. Did they try to engage you in conversation while they had their hands <laughs> in your mouth? I don't think they did because I was crying. They did. I have a television screen over my uh, – that I could watch and they said, do you want – me to get you the headphones so you can watch the TV. You want to watch cartoons, Matt? But uh, the problem is I can't see because they take my glasses off and now I can't uh. see so it's all, it doesn't matter. See, I would endure anything for that kind of treatment. You don't have that at yours? No. Yeah, you need that. Yeah. Mine has a it's drop great. ceiling that's been there for about 20 years. Really? Yeah. <laughs> With like that cottage cheese coating and it's like got asbestos That's one of those false your... ceilings. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a little bit, yeah. Good just time. hanging there by a thread. Oh, the yeah. dentist. Aren't they great? I mean, they really are. Where, where would you be? And my dentist is incredible. Um, he anyway, may be listening. So. He, he may be listening. So all and he's my watching. hygienists, they're all fantastic. Uh, we're going to get to that. Also today we're going to be talking about the hot hand theory. Do you believe in sports that somebody can actually get a hot hand? And they can get in this routine where they're just on. They're on. Give them the ball. Give them the ball because they've got a hot hand. Because for years, the uh, – what do we call them? The statisticians right. were debunking the myth that it's a hot hand because once you've counted up all of the shots, it's still a 50-50 shot. Oh, wow. But – So they're saying it's chance that it yeah. went in that many times in a row. Right. It's, it's just pretty – it's just a normal – Random. It's just a normal sample, and it'll always come out to just be average. There is no such thing as a hot hand. Uh-huh. But I think it was Red Arbach said, "Bull, really? Once when there's a hot hand, you know there's a hot hand." And right. now the statisticians have disproven earlier studies, and they are now saying there is such a thing as momentum and a hot hand. Right. And there are times when it's not an average distribution. There are times when someone lights it up and they are on fuego. Hmm. So we'll get to that. It's also good with your thoughts. Don't you think we have hot hands at times on this show? I've never felt your hands. Anywho, we'll get to all that straight ahead. Plus, we will also look at the empty news. It's awkward. Um, interesting story. You won't believe this, but nope. uh, Shuk Shumway's back. Nice. And I don't know how he does it, but he always gets the the interview. He's incredible at getting the interview. So you had attraction. Yeah, kind okay. of. Oh, kind of a guy. Yeah, they found a guy in a. They found a guy that was hiding from police yeah. in an air conditioning. Yeah, system. I can believe he got that interview. And he got it. He got it. So we'll be going to Shik Shumway in just a bit. But first, to Terry South with the headlines. Terry, what's up? In two Wednesday night rulings, the Arkansas Supreme Court temporarily blocked plans to execute multiple inmates. In the first ruling, the court ordered a stay of execution for one of two inmates scheduled to be executed today on the grounds that the inmate may be able to prove his innocence through DNA evidence. The inmate, Stacy Johnson, says he's innocent of a 1993 murder and that advanced DNA testing will exonerate him. In another ruling, just moments later, the same court ruled that Arkansas may not use lethal injection drugs supplied by the McKesson Corporation, a pharmaceutical company that claims the state misled it on how drugs would be used. Arkansas had plans to execute eight men over 11 days. It's going to be this week. And they have had uh, considerate pushback from courts and other groups because, you know, seems like they're in a rush to take out these gentlemen before the uh, drugs expire at the end of the month. <laughs> trying to get get that fat. And the, the company there doesn't want their product used for that purpose. Right, right. 
So this has been a uh, interesting week as this has been completely derailed, and Arkansas is without an execution. Interesting. I yeah. mean, does this mean we're going to have to go back to the good old days? It used to seem like we had many ways to execute someone. Yeah, but it's getting to the point now where you have one way, and that's the only way. So we'll yeah. see. State uh, media in North Korea on Thursday warned the U.S. of a super mighty preemptive strike following remarks from State uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, in which he said the U.S. was looking for ways to increase pressure on, on North Korea over its nuclear program. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has repeatedly threatened the U.S. and hit back at admonitions from China and the U.N. over its missile tests. In the case of our super-mighty preemptive strike being launched, it will completely and immediately wipe out not only U.S. imperialist invasion forces in South Korea and its surrounding areas, but the U.S. mainland and reduce them to ashes, said the state-run newspaper in North Korea. Wow. So. Huge. I love the super-mighty preemptive. Right. It really illustrates the level of strike it would be. Super mighty preemptive. Super mighty. U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson on Wednesday lashed out at Iran for what it described as an alarming ongoing provocation. It's a difficult word for it. That's a hard word. Aimed at destabilizing the Middle East, Tillerson said in a review of U.S. policy on Iran announced Tuesday that uh, they will examine not only its compliance with the 2015 nuclear agreement, which the White House has said it's adhering to, but also its behavior with other countries in the Mideast. So Secretary of State, who was quiet for oh so long, <laughs> now getting out there now and ruffling feathers. So, and finally, French presidential candidate Jean-Luc Mélenchon, hmm? which I'm probably butchering, might look like a so-called aging leftist, but don't, get, don't let appearances fool you. He actually might be one of the most tech-savvy politicians in the world. Really? Mélenchon, 65, used technology Tuesday evening to appear at seven rallies all at the same time. While physically in the city of How? Dijon, Melachon also appeared to audiences in, th- in three dimensions in six other cities using holographic technology. What? Technically, the technology isn't a true hologram so much as it is an optical illusion. The stunt doesn't come cheap. The first rally costs between 50 and 100,000 euros. Wow. Which is about the same $100,000. 50, you know. But it's successful because it allows the candidate to say, regardless of my age, I'm showing you that I'm comfortable with new technologies <laughs> and methods, French politician uh, analysis said there. The first round of the French presidential election will be held on April 23rd. If no one gets the majority of the vote, it will be followed by a runoff May 7th, and there's a Le Pen yeah. female candidate that people are Does she, does she use holograms? Her, no, but she's the, the Trump candidate of that election. Yeah. She's looking for isolation, nationalism, that kind of thing. But what about the day that, that – think of the security benefit of this. Right. You could have a hologram that looks just like the candidate floating, hovering over a stage. It's really cool. I was watching the video of it, and he's standing there, and he starts talking, and then they flip a switch, and then they show you the six other locations. He just pops on stage. Now, you can see it's kind of a blue glow to it, but it's him, and he's walking around talking. Everyone at all these different locations can see him. Well, many say Donald has an orange glow. Yes, he does. What's the diff? I think think this could be really cool because then, too, you could – if he think about this now, the president could from the White House be live doing a conference in Las Vegas, right? And can actually speak directly to that audience, use their terms, their names, everything, and no security, no transport, no planes, nothing, mm-hmm. and get the same benefit. I think that could save cool. a lot of money. I mean, think about that. Th- then the president could do five of those a day and. Think of campaigning. 
This could make campaigning cheaper, except it's 100,000 euro a whack. It looked a lot like when Princess Leia goes, Obi-Wan, you're our only hope. Yes. Kind of that sort of scene from uh-huh. Star Wars. Yeah. Did mm. um, did this guy have the Princess Leia hair? The, the hair buns? Uh-huh. No, okay. he did not. He did, actually, I don't think he had much hair because he's an aging leftist, as it says. Well, except he's very high-tech and tech savvy. Well, I think his staff might be. I don't know how much he actually <laughs> had involved in setting this up other than he stood there. That's See, great. leftists – are capable of doing great things too. You don't have to be right-handed to, yeah. you know, accomplish great things. Yeah. So can, by the way, any versus Audi belly button people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But it is weird if you're an Audi. There's I'm just, just putting it out it says there. Says an any. There's just this bump thing. It's just yeah. it's weird. Yeah. What's that thing? <laughs> you can get that fixed, can't you? That's my belly just button. Get that removed. It's lit. Yeah. Just pick it out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, a uh, Florida man treated for hypothermia after hiding from deputies. In an air conditioning duct. This is uh, this is one of those stories we hear about quite a bit. Mm. Uh, deputies are looking. We're looking for Larry G. Puleo Thursday evening, but they couldn't find the guy who was wanted for outstanding warrants for violating probation. But they did hear someone scurrying around in the attic above them. Figuring out that it was Puleo, they ordered him to surrender. And after an hour with no response, deputies searched the attic, but the attic was empty. Where was Puleo? Where was he? They discovered the uh, only other possible way that this could be happening was that he somehow got into the air conditioning duct in a bedroom closet leading into the attic. And lo and behold, he was stuck in there. Wow. And it just so happens that our wonderful reporter, Shik Shumway, who first in news, last in quality. Spelling? Oh. Facts? Yeah. At facts. First in – first, he's always first on the scene, fifth in the facts. Content? And, Grammar? Integrity? And Schick's always had a hard time because a lot of times he gets to these interviews, but we can't hear him. Um, but I think today we can hear Schick. You can hear him loud and clear. This is awesome. So this is Schick Shumway interviewing Larry G. Puleo um, as the, the police had just found him and, and they're closing in on him. Sir, can you tell us how you got into this mess? Typical chick, Shumway presentation. I'm sorry, but how did he get there so quickly? I think he should get some credit for that. Well, he should. But again, this seems to be more of a producer air now. This seems to be Terry's fault. What, what did I do? Because Terry somehow gets him on the scene quickly. I, I, he's independent. He, yeah. he submits the reports to us. So he's rogue, basically. He should actually be careful. He seems to be getting to the, the scene before the police are there because the person yeah. he's talking to, obviously, yeah. he's still in the air conditioning. Do we deck. even know if – maybe he's staging all of this and is maybe he, he never leaves his house. Is he in cahoots with these criminals? Probably. The police are going to start trying to question Chick. <sighs> the man did sound cold though. He so. was mad too. And I think at the end something happened. Like he just uh, expired. The real story is that apparently that air conditioning unit really works well. Yeah. The guy was freezing. He had hypothermia. So, so the deputies had to cut him out uh, from the duct and free him and he had hypothermia. And wow. then he was released and then booked into jail. Could you get a hypothermia in your home air conditioning unit? 
No, but I get it in my car. Do you? My hands are freezing. In my office, I turn everything really well, cold. Sometimes right. Jeff has to wear a coat in the studio. Mm. Like, like you're wearing now. He wears a parka. Uh-huh. Yeah. And those big boots that he bought for his scout trip. Right. And that big Russian coat that he wears. I'm big like Randy coat. in A Christmas Story. You totally are. They can't, right. you can't put his put arms, arms down. down. Yeah. Hey, another funny story. Uh, California Chick-fil-A stores um, have some stolen cow costumes. Those Chick-fil-A cows are just hilarious. Yeah. Everybody wants to be a part of that. A Folsom California Chick-fil-A franchise is waiting for its cows to come home after thieves stole their three mascot costumes from a storage shed earlier this week. The company pleaded with customers to help find the kidnapped cows. James Dock, the store's hospitality director, said Thursday they just want the cows back. No questions asked. Just give us the cows back. We're hoping that through us reaching out in numerous ways that the people who took the cows will come to their senses and bring the cows back to us. We're hoping it's not. It's just a prank. We're assuming it's a prank. Some commenters on Facebook are calling the theft a beef napping. And stealing the cows is called rustling. Folsom police are investigating. It's not like somebody can dress up like a, like that for Halloween, right? It's it's an iconic cow. People will know. Can you imagine the fines if those guys get caught? I mean, Chick-fil-A is just going to milk them for all they're worth. Yep. They're going to just milk them. Um, it's going to be an utter disaster if they get caught. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they'll, have, they'll pay me a meaty price. The police are going to beat them until they're black and white. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. It's hard. But, you know, I've, I, it's, I've found it's, you know, Chick-fil-A's the cream of the crop. You know, they're, the, they're just the, the, the cream. Yeah. They're going to they're gonna put these guys out to pasture if they get caught. Yeah, they will. Yeah, they will. Yep. Doesn't this remind you of something, though? It seems like, you know, I don't want to speak ill of any of our sponsors. Well, maybe you should. But it does raise the question because we have a sponsor, the Crook Closet. Yeah. How do they get all of these outfits to supply the crooks with? Oh, I I always assume they just were making them. Uh, Maybe these guys stole them and took them to the Crook Closet. Maybe they're pilfering. Well, uh, weird. Uh, Well, we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk momentum isn't uh, magic, or is it? We'll talk about uh, some of the interesting stats about that. But first, a message from one of our sponsors. Are you planning to rob a convenience store but are stumped about what to wear? As every crook knows, you only have one chance, approximately four and a half minutes, to make a first impression. So make it a good one and buy your next disguise at the Crook Closet. The only store where criminals can find the outfits they need to feel more confident on the job. Come in now and choose from some of our more popular disguises, such as Chewbacca, Deadpool, and the timely Donald Trump mask. Not only will they keep your identity safe, but they also make great conversation starters. So while you're breaking the law, you'll have the perfect outfit to break the ice. The Crook Closet, the store where you can shop first and ask questions later.
Welcome back, friends. You know, with the conclusion of the NCAA basketball tournament uh, last month and the beginning of the NBA playoffs right now, teams are experiencing magical moments where hours of practice meet opportunity, creating game-winning shots or dominating performances. Nearly every basketball player, coach, or fan believes that some shooters have an uncanny tendency to experience what they call the hot hand. This is also referred to as being on fire or they're in the zone, you know, where they are just incapable of missing. So um, is, is it true? Is there such a thing as a hot hand? Because I remember mathematicians, statisticians for years was saying there's no such thing. There is no such thing as a hot hand. Statistically, it's all there's there's not a, a state of. Uh, of in on in the zone, I guess. And so here to help us sort through this with some of their latest research are two professors that have studied the phenomenon. Adam Sanjuro um, is an assistant professor of economics at the Universidad de Alicante in Spain. And Joshua Miller is an assistant professor of decision sciences at Bocconi University in Italy and affiliate at IGIER. Uh, we appreciate both of you being on the phone. Thank you, professors, for being with us today. Glad to be here. It's great to be here. Good to have you both. Thanks now, for having us. talk to us. Uh, talk to us about this uh, hot hand phenomenon, because um, many might wonder why you're even researching it. But th- this has been a debate in sports f- for a very long time. It seems like Adam, maybe enlighten us. Uh, how did all this research start? Oh well, um, I mean there was an early body of laboratory experiments by psychologists which uh, in which they were you know testing to see how well do we process information when it arrives over time so you could imagine you know there's lots of uh, important applications like uh, stock markets going up or down day after day so you know what are the type of patterns that we can pick up you know does, is the market going up several days in a row, uh, does it go up for a while, then go down, these kind of things. So, you know, some basic questions there are what type of patterns do we detect in those type of sequences of data? What type of patterns don't we detect? And in this case, are there certain patterns that we detect that don't actually exist? So that was the, so the notion being that, you know, maybe when there's streaks of similar outcomes, like in basketball, it would be making several shots in a row. Maybe we have a tendency of um, thinking that that kind of streak is going to continue more likely than it actually is because there's sort of a, a streak, because there's some positive momentum in the process. Like gamblers. Gamblers question. might think that there's streaks. Uh, stock market players might think there's streaks. Sports fans think there's streaks. But forever, they were, I guess, they were they were saying what? Um, well, yeah, I mean, so one question is the psychological question of when do we start seeing a streak and do, you know, do we think that that streak is more likely to continue? And then there's the scientific question of, you know, is there actually some kind of inherent streakiness in this, in this process that the people are perceiving? So in the basketball context, um, you know, the notion, the popular notion of the hot hand belief is that, that, you know, that players will enter into this sort of superior performance state on occasion in which 
you know, they're going to make several shots in a row. They're going to make more shots in a row than they usually do when they're in a normal state. And I guess when we look at it, because, you know, we're not all mathematicians. We're all not scientists that are that are studying this. This is, I guess, this is the typical human uh, air of how we choose the data, the data we choose to look at, the bias we have. Um about these things, and, and I guess uh, talk to me then, Josh. Is this um, th- there was a, a, a kind of I guess the quintessential landmark paper done in 1985 about this, b- blowing up the idea that there is such a thing as a hot hand. Um, am I am I accurate in that? And but then you were able to go through yeah. some of the data and find out that huh, hold it, maybe. And, and that, by the way, when that paper came out, it, I guess it, it upset a lot of people. And then you now have been able to find a possible error in in their research that that might you know change some of the data. Talk to us about uh, what what was the standard before Josh, and what what's happening because of what you're finding. Sure, sure. So this, the original paper you're referring to is a paper by uh, Thomas Gilovich, Robert Ballone, and uh, Amos Tversky. It was written in. 1985, and it was a sensational paper. I mean, of course, you know, as you mentioned, you know, sports fans have a hard time believing it if someone tells them the hot hand doesn't exist, and the same for players and coaches. They have, you know, famous quotes at the time from Red Auerbach who's saying, you know, so they make a study, who cares? Um, so it, it didn't really stick at the time, um, immediately anyway, but it, it's the kind of paper that had this long tail. So, you know, no one came out and showed that they were wrong, and a lot of people went out and tried to look at other data um, in an attempt to show that they were wrong. And in, they were looking at very noisy data. They, they didn't, they've never found anything. Um, so it created this narrative that, you know, beyond just academia, where you actually had announcers, like I saw it the other day, Jeff Van Gundy was announcing the Warriors game versus the Blazers, and he goes, you know, I know these stats guys say the hot hand doesn't exist, but, you know, just look, you know, look at him. I forget who he's referring to. I think it was uh, one of the guards in the Blazers. Um, and so, you know, it became this phenomenon. Well, what happened was there was a very subtle error in that paper that um, many people didn't pick up. I mean, we didn't pick it up the first time we read the paper. Um, it kind of comes out when you think about the problem for a while and you play with the problem for a while. So they had... They actually did have a, a mistake, but it wasn't an obvious mistake. Um, it, it was a subtle mistake, and it was kind of a new mistake. So we had to, at the same time while we were pointing out the mistake, we kind of had to explain it. Hmm. It, was, it was new. And the explanation's crazy, but try, so try to give us a simple explanation of it. What was the mistake? <laughs> I mean, when, when, I was, when I was reading it, I'm like, that is incredible, but it, it makes sense. Um, yeah, so it's, okay, so the, the, the mistake, I mean, you know, a broad, a broad brushstroke way of thinking about it would be, um, in a certain sense, they decided what data to study after looking at their data. So, so they said, okay, we're only going to look at the shots that a player takes um, after a streak because, you know, we're interested in the probability that, you know, the next shot is a success if the previous few shots are a success. So I don't care about... Um, what that probability, what that you know, probability is in the previous few shots are a failure. So I'm only going to look at the subset of the data where you have successes. And when you do that, once you have the data in front of you, you're excluding data in a non-random way. Um, and so, you know, if I if I take a particular shot just because it's preceded by a few successes, 
you know, is that shot more likely to be a success than usual? Well, actually, it turns out it's less likely to be a success than usual. Because, you know, if it were the case that it was a success, you could have chosen the shot after that. Mm-hmm. But you didn't. You chose the shot that you looked at. And so it brings the probability down. It's kind of a selection bias thing. And it's severe enough that, um, you know, it reverses their results. Not only does it just invalidate it and say, oh, you know, their conclusion is wrong. Um, we're agnostic now with the data that they have. Actually, the bias was strong enough that it put it back in the other direction and says, no, actually, there's evidence of a hot hand in there. In mm-hmm. there. I guess part of that is because they they may have sold, was it the third shot that they still after somebody had made two shots that's the, th- the third shot's the shot they measured is that right yeah yeah I mean they, they well they looked at the fourth shot the fifth shot I mean it's, okay. it's basically any shot that's preceded by a streak a and streak they find streaks in different ways and you can look at it in different ways but it all says the same story. yeah so a selection error a, a selection bias error which is you know really important statistically. <laughs> You got to make sure that your selections are right, and and the the thought behind it, it ended up making it so there was no real uh, data, significant data that would show that there is such a thing as a hot hand. But you now, Adam, what have you guys been able to prove when you changed the selection criteria? Yeah. So as Josh was explaining, so basically, you know. Uh, in the in the canonical paper, the 1985 Gilovich, Vian, and Tversky paper, they go out and they, you know, look. They actually test whether or not there's this hot hand effect in the shooting data. They look at a number of different shooting data sets. So, but then, you know, these analyses are vulnerable to this bias that Josh just explained. So the first thing that we did, as Josh said, is we went back to um, some controlled shooting data, they had some college players come in and shoot in a gym under controlled, eh, under a controlled uh, setting in which you would expect if there's a hot hand and it would, you know, it might be able to emerge. Whereas if you look at game data, there's all different types of things going on. There's defensive pressure, uh, different plays are being called. So it's a much more complicated setting. So <clears throat> what we did is we we went back and we started with the controlled shooting data. So there's a number of different, there's a few different data sets out there in which players shot in either controlled environments, meaning like in a gym with no defensive pressure. And, you know, maybe they were moving around between shots. Maybe they were standing in the same place. So there's a few different data sets out there. And what we did is we analyzed those data sets with our own statistical procedure that was invulnerable this bias that we just explained. Hmm. And what we find there is across all of the data sets that we look at, we find a hot hand effect. It exists. And, right. So then, you know, some people said, well, you know, I, a lot of scientists, I think, were happy with that because we looked at shooting in a controlled, in a, in a basically controlled experiment. But, you know, some people said, well, but, you know, this, is, this isn't game data. What about in the game? So, you know, there's this tension because you, what you want to do is obviously you'd like to be able to test whether or not there's a hot hand effect in the, these NBA games that you're watching, for example. But as I just said, you know, that's, a, that's very difficult to do because there's so many different factors that may determine whether or not players are making several shots in a row. So what we did was we went back, um, Richard Thaler and uh, Cass Sunstein in their nudge book, had referred to the NBA three-point shooting, 
the NBA three-point uh, shootout in the All-Star weekend as the ideal setting in which to test for the hot hand because what you have there are you have the players that you're most interested in, you know, the best shooters yeah. in the NBA. And what you have is basically um, an environment that replicates uh, many of the critical features of an NBA game. You know, you're in an NBA arena. Pressure, fans. A large group of, right, all that good stuff. But at the same time, it's sort of semi-controlled in the sense that there's no defenders. Um, the shooters are shooting from basically the same distance. Um, so what we do there, we take our same statistical analysis that's invulnerable to this bias again, and there we find strong evidence of the hot hand again. So basically everywhere, all of the data that we've been able to get our hands on and apply our statistical analysis, which is invulnerable to this bias, we found the hot hand everywhere. Man, and when they get on the hot hand, it gives them what advantage? What statistical advantage did you see? Well, okay, so the numbers, in terms of the magnitude of the effect, it varies across the data sets that we've studied, but it can vary, you know, the order of magnitude is anywhere from, you know, four or five percentage points to 13 percentage points. So if you think in basketball terms, these are large effect sizes hmm. because, you know, as a reference point, sometimes we mentioned that last year in the NBA, the difference between basically an average three-point shooter and the very best three-point shooter was about 10 percentage points. That's so these huge. are large effect sizes. Um, and one of the things that we remind the readers of in our paper is that these are actually underestimates. So all of the, all of the magnitudes that we report are actually underestimates because of uh, what's called a, a measurement bias. So basically because of the way that you're testing for the hot hand, trying to measure this possible effect size for statistical reasons, what you're actually getting is an underestimate. Mm. So you can think of these as like lower bounds. Yeah. Is it um, – okay, here's what we're going to do. Let's and, – and maybe Adam or uh, Josh, you answer this one and, and then we'll take a break. But um, is it would – this, would the same theory of hot hand then also apply in the stock market? Oh, um, well, you couldn't extrapolate our results to that, um, to that. Um, I mean, you know, we don't really get at the mechanism in our study. So, we're, you know, we're, we're essentially we're studying the statistical patterns that you can pick up right. with, with, you know, with, in the data. But the data is very um, coarse in a sense. You know, we're not getting a fine measure of like the player's state. So, you know, Adam just mentioned this issue of measurement, measurement error. So if, if, if you're only using outcomes of the previous shot as your measurement of whether this person's hot, you're not really seeing the same thing that, let's say, the teammates and the coach see or that the player feels. And, you know, these people, so players, for example, you know, they're very tuned to their body. Right. And, and they can feel things that you can't measure. And they may have a finer sense of whether, you know, that shot was lucky um, and they're just exploiting the fact that their teammates are going to give them some an extra shots because they made it or they might... You know, they might yeah. know, you know, so, so and the teammates might be seeing things, too. And we're not measuring those things. And so, you know, e even within the basketball, it's hard to, hard to know, you know, when somebody's hot or not, if you're only using, you know, whether they made the shot or not. Now, you know, if you get to go to, you know, go outside to other environments like in the stock market, well, I mean, these are human beings making decisions, right? You can have a manager of a mutual fund that, you know, one way they could have a hot hand is they have some, some temp temporary 
temporarily useful information that they can exploit that you know has an expiration date or uh, they might also be particularly focused there might be human factors in it as well mm. um, you know confidence things like this can you know improve your you know increase your attention and and effort and things like this so um, I I would guess, you know, I'm not a psychologist, um, that, you know, these mechanisms transcend sports. But, um, yeah, we don't have any hard evidence. Yeah. Interesting stuff. We'll take a break. We're speaking with Joshua Miller and Adam Sanherjo, um, two professors that are trying to understand the the hot hand that you might see in basketball. Does it exist? Apparently, according to them, it's real. It's real. You can get... A hot hand, and and some people just are in a flow, and it it can improve um, the for the time. There there's a there's a distinct um, difference in the gameplay. We'll take a break, come back, figure out how all of this applies to you, and uh, and what we can surmise from their research. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you make it through this crazy thing we call life. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are talking about the complicated mathematically and statistically uh, understanding of the hot hand. Basketball players, you know, you know when you've got the hot hand. Give him the ball. Give him the ball. He's got it. Um, But uh, forever, it's been an idea that uh, some statisticians and mathematicians have debunked. It's And just basically, I mean, even, by the way, a Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman, believe the hot hand is a massive and widespread cognitive illusion. Except uh, our two guests, Joshua Miller and Adam Sanjurjo. Um, Adam is an assistant professor of economics at the Universidad de Alicante in Spain, and Joshua Miller is an assistant professor of decision sciences at Bocconi University in Italy, an affiliate at IGIER. And um, we were honored to have you guys on the show, helping us make sense of this hot hand idea. Tell me, um, Adam, what does it mean going forward? Uh, what... I mean, it's still, it's still, you know, you know it when you got it, and it yeah. does work in sports. Um, what, 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 what does this mean to the rest of us? Yeah, I think for the rest of us, the you know the primary importance of all of this research was basically that we're watching basketball games, and we feel like sometimes a player has a hot hand, but then in the back of our minds, we remember that you know these smart researchers. Uh, demonstrated apparently a long time ago that this is just a cognitive illusion. We think that we're observing a hot hand, but it, it actually isn't because of what these, what this uh, scientific work had, had demonstrated. So the, I mean the the direct kind of uh, the immediate consequence of, of our uh, results is that that's all wrong. Mm. I mean that that thought process is no can no longer be considered correct. So in other words. For the rest, for you know, for us as we're watching basketball games, we don't have to stop ourselves now and say, "But wait a minute, the hot hand doesn't exist," because now there's no scientific evidence saying that that's, right. that's the case. So by contrast, you know, when when some corrections were made and some mistakes that were made in those original studies, and then you know, a more recent wave of investigators 
went out and tested for the hot hand, uh, sort of fixing up those mistakes and all the data that they could find, they found the hot hand everywhere they looked. So, yeah, so I, I mean, I think what's nice about that is that um, on some sense, uh, you know, people people were right all along. Yeah. You know, that's Now, that comes with a qualification, right? The qualification is that, you know, the evidence that we found shows that the hot hand exists. It's a phenomenon that re- recurs. We find it persistently across all the data sets we look at. Now, that doesn't mean that maybe we're, you know, maybe we are too prone to see a hot hand sometimes when, when maybe one hasn't emerged yet. Yeah, maybe it was a lucky hand. Yeah, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe we're excited and we want to see, we want to believe we're seeing a hot hand sometimes and maybe it's not, there's not enough evidence yet for us to really be sure that that's what we're seeing. Um, But, you know, so that's kind of uh, where we've pushed the debate within the scientific community and, you know, that you can no longer on principle say that somebody's wrong once they convey that they believe in the existence of a hot hand. Yeah. That's basically what the paradigm in the literature had been before our work. So that's definitely changed, and there's kind of no, you know, it would be very difficult for someone to try to push that argument back now. But now, you know, the direction that things are going are the more subtle points. Like, how, you know, now that we've shown that there is a hot hand, you know, how well calibrated are we in our beliefs? Right. Are we... Are we too soon to believe that we're seeing a hot hand? Do we think that the, you know, do we anticipate that the effect size is larger than what it actually is? So those type of questions are much more subtle. And, you know, you can kind of intuit from some of the discussion that we've had about the kind of gory statistical details that those questions are hard to get definitive answers. Mm. So when you want to get down to the fine tuning of how well calibrated we are, that's going to take a lot more additional work. Exactly. And I, I love the idea that, that this is the scientific process. This is the scientific methodology is that we are going to – let's allow the scientists to debunk the scientists. I mean, Red Arbach was trying to debunk them and um, knew mm-hmm. that there was something going on. But there's that – like you say, there's that intuitive side of this. Um, Joshua, I mean, there are a lot of questions still out there. Um, I guess too, this is this might open other doors up to, you know, examining other other phenomena like a, a gambler, uh, somebody that's at a casino that feels like they've got the hot hand, or luck. You know, luck is on their side. Maybe is there a string of luck, um, or in something that's more random that maybe might demand less skill, but just roll of the die. Where do you think you're going to take this going forward, Josh? Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't take this to the casino. Um, you know, of course, it depends what kind of game you're talking about. Yeah, right. Because right? if, if you're playing poker, um, you know, of course, you can have moments where you're, you're, you're more on it, right? It's not, not so much the, the hand that you're right. dealt, but you're, the hand that you play can be hot because you're, you know, you're, you're, cho- you're, you're choosing well. Um, now, you know, I guess you could maybe say a little bit, you know, some of the same about blackjack. You know, you can probably do relatively better than other times, depending on how you play and how concentrated you are. But, yeah, I mean, for something that's purely random, um, say, you know, roulette. Right. um, It's physically not possible based on what we understand, you know, in terms of how the world works. So I think, you know, our prior should be there could be no hot hand there. Anyone that believes it there um, is making a mistake. Yeah. Um, at least, you know, with a very high probability. They have a, cog- they have a widespread <laughs> cognitive illusion. Yeah. I mean, you, you, know, you would need a lot of 
overwhelming evidence to shift, <laughs> I think, anyone on that one. Right, right. That's good. No, that's – I mean, honestly, guys, and I think that's I think that's the key to this. And I love it because – I mean, it seems like there's always this divide between the believers on the court and the scientists, and you just made it very real where just allow science to battle science. And it may take 20 years. It may take 25 years for the scientists to finally debunk it. But, you know, people make mistakes in our research, Um, except, too, back to the roulette table, that's not going to be debunked. Um, There's just randomness and randomization. Um, interesting stuff, folks. We have got a lot uh, a lot of learning here. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. We appreciate Joshua Miller and Adam Sanjurjo and their uh, great work on momentum and magic. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Springtime is uh, here, my friends, and it's a time of new things, right? New flowers, new relationships, new goals, and maybe even time for a new job. That could not be uh, more true than with our next guest, Caitlin Thomas, joins us because Caitlin's here to talk to us, you know, as a college, almost college graduate. She's going to teach us this morning about some things you need to know to nail the job interview. Yeah. Because you're out doing job interviews. Really, I'm just teaching myself this morning. This is great, though. This is an important learning for all. I mean, I think it's interesting because I think the way that you used to interview 10 years ago is different than the way you have to interview now. And so there could be a lot of people looking to change their, you know, change their job, kind of change what they do with their life. Plus, we have all this technology, right? So now you can do so much more technologically. And I actually learned, I went to this, like, career boot camp kind of thing, and they taught me that nowadays... Kids coming out of college should expect to have about 10 to 15 different jobs in their lifetime. Yeah. Versus like, you know, five. No, I had my my grandfather-in-law looked at me when I was quitting a job, a great job. Mm-hmm. He looked at me like I was committing the unpardonable right. sin. Right. Once you had a job, you just kept it. And it was Hang loyalty to, it. to a company. Yeah. But it's different now. It's I mean, it's the way you should have about 10 to 15 jobs by the time, if that, by the time you retire, which sounds like a lot, but... You know, it, it looks better on a resume to be constantly changing and learning new things and adapting and showing mm-hmm. that you have a wide variety of skills. So, that's cool. Anyways, that's why I'm here because I'm looking into getting a job. Are you now? Yeah. Oh, yeah well, that's... I mean, I wish I could keep this job. But yeah, they won't this is let the me. greatest job on earth. I know, but they won't let me. So I went and found – I have an interview tomorrow. So I went and found some, some interview tips. Excellent. Do you want share. me to make a call? Do you want me to – okay, never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, the first one is dress to impress, right? We all know this. But also, you don't have to necessarily wear, like, your nicest outfit. Like, look into the culture of the company that you're going to and dress appropriately. For example, I went to an interview a couple weeks ago, and it was with a more millennial, young, super, you know, trendy company. And so I wasn't going to wear, you know, a maybe, like, suit pants and, like, a blazer. I put right. on a more trendy young, fresh-looking dress mm-hmm. with some really, you know, cute shoes. And I showed up and I, I fit right in. What? You wore, wore plaid. plaid. It was all good. It's all good. Of course you wore plaid. So, so dress to dress, dress for the audience For the audience that you're going to see. Um, be on time. Oh, you know, don't... So true. Even five minutes early is better than walking in, you know, right on the dot. Like, yeah. be early so you can get to the front desk and say, hey, I have an interview, I'm here. So that the person, when they call them and say, hey, she's here, knows that you mm-hmm. know how to be on time. 
Um, and also, mind your time within the interview. That's what I learned. Is it's like if you just blabber and jabber on and on and on, yeah. they don't get to actually. They might not get to everything that they want to ask. So, you know, control the interview with your answers, but also manage your time. And you need, yeah, don't like you're not there to monopolize with one answer right. and run out the clock. Exactly, you're not a politician. Right. Let, just give me well, nice little answers. I mean, unless you're interviewing for a political job, yeah, maybe. Right. But um, another one that I like to said to provide examples. It's one thing to say you can do something; it's another to actually provide like a statement. So yeah. Don't just say I have these skills. Say I have these skills, and I developed it through yada 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 mm-hmm. doing this. Yeah. Give and it's it. like, oh, she actually did something. Right. How would you answer this question? What's your worst trait, Caitlin? Oh, this is so good. I learned this in the pageant industry. Oh, yeah, because, yeah. Flip that. So I would say something about how I'm just so, you know, I'm just, I'm a perfectionist, and I love to get everything done in the day. And for a long time, you know, that was overwhelming. But now I've made a planner. I have a system where I can go through and cross things off and and find which is the most important. Oh, that's a great answer. Nailed it. And then if you could just add in a few words, like, like, you know, like, Um, you know. You know. Yeah. So. You know. Be honest. Yeah. Don't, Don't lie. lie. It, this one, it sounds like it's obvious, but it's not. Well, and especially now because we can just search the answer. Right. Like I can search to see if you were President were Trump's you actually this yeah. secretary. Secretary. Um, don't lie. You know, if if you really don't have a strong background in something, just say that. Yeah. Because you still could potentially get the job, but they just need to know what they need to train you in. Right. If you say, yeah, yeah. I've mastered all that stuff, then day one, they're going to just assume you know how. That'll set and you up for problem. failure. Right. You don't want that. <laughs> um, this one was interesting. Keep your guard up. One of the most neglected interview skills is listening. Make sure you're not only listening but also reading between the lines. Yes. You know what I mean? Sometimes what is not said is just as important as what is yeah. said. Yeah. Pay attention to what's not being asked. Yeah. Why aren't they asking, Why aren't they asking when asking you could start? <laughs> right. Why aren't they asking huh. what your last job paid you? Do you think, because this happened with Jeff when we interviewed Jeff, do you think you, he wanted to do a FaceTime interview mm. and he did, he did it in bed in his pajamas? Jeff. How I does, thought that was awkward. He still got the job. But they were BYU radio pajamas. Uh, so I thought that was okay. You know, catering to yeah. his audience. But you were actually, you weren't <laughs> even sitting up. You were just uh, well, on if, your side. If, if you are going to do a FaceTime, because those are pretty common now, especially, you know, if you can't fly out for this interview, they'll just do it during FaceTime. But just make sure you're in an office or yeah. somewhere quiet. Yeah. Be careful. Yeah. And lock the door so your kids don't come running in like that one. Like that one. BBC. <laughs> Although that was cute. That was that super was cute. cute. He would have got the job. And then the last one is just to ask great questions. Um, come ready with good questions to ask about the company, anything you don't know, um, or any hangups you might have. Because at the very end, when they say any questions for me, you better have some. I hope so. I well, hope no, no, I'm good. Some. This is totally great. So there you have it, Caitlin, guys. well done. We wish you the best of luck. Thank you. I'm Get here a for job. another little while. I know. So. We'll, and we're here. We've, we could all write letters of recommendation. Guys, keep me here. We got you. We got you covered. Her name's Caitlin Thomas. She's looking for a job. We'll take a break. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the program where we give you the latest, greatest research, insight, information to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. This is the place. And today, no exception, we'll be speaking with Heather Johnson about healthy controversy. Because a lot of times you, I guess, would think, hey, if something's controversial, you know, we don't want to go near that. Stay away. It's kind of ugly. It's weird. It makes us feel uncomfortable. Didn't President Trump coin that term, healthy controversy? Or was it Kellyanne Conway? Um, It may have been Kellyanne. I don't – I'm not sure that we're handling the controversy of America in a healthy way yet. I mean that's kind of the goal of the show. See if we can't make it healthier. So we'll learn from Heather Ann Johnson today how to do that and really how to teach your kids to do that because if not, they'll either run from controversy or conflict in their lives or they'll get too aggressive and mean and bully. You got to choose a better path than running, fighting or flighting. Hmm. You know? you got to find another way through it. We'll get to all that fun. Of course, we're going to celebrate a fully high-five day. Ouch. Uh, we've been high-fiving each other all day long. Jeff and I, have, have we haven't touched hands this often. Or whipped each other with Apparently. a bull whip. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Um, high-five day, the day you just go out there, stretch your hand out and say, hey, pal, high-five. Do it at the store. You can do it, you know, while slowly driving by other people. Reach your hand out. Jerry Seinfeld is very against the high five. Is he? He I don't says remember that they that. did it in World War II, and it was called the Heil Five. Wow! Wow! He went there with it. Did he not learn from Sean Spicer? Yeah, you just stay away. You don't go there. I didn't say Holocaust. I said World War II. Yeah. Uh, lots of fun there. Um, we will cover that. Also, we'll be visiting our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's going coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Plus, a hero story of uh, the day. A first date ends with the woman saving her date's life. Then the next question is, so will so, there be a second date? Florence Nightingale Syndrome, yeah. isn't that what it's called? Some people will do anything to get a little mouth-to-mouth. Apparently. We'll get to that fun. Um, Actually, it didn't end that way. That's not how he was hurting. We'll get to that fun. But first to the news headlines with Terry South. Terry, what is going on around the rest of the country we should be paying attention to? With the 100-day deadline looming, I'm now checking my – I have a – a email here that tells me what day this is of. It's day 91. Interesting word choice, too. Looming. Looming. It's still only 91 days into the presidency. 91 days into, into the presidency. Day 100 is looming. It's next week. The White House is reportedly looking for a win. They're looking for something to point to and say, look what we did. Besides, you know, the justice to the Supreme Court. Citing two sources close to the health care legislative process, CNN reports Wednesday that the White House is exploring whether it can accomplish the famed repeal and replace of Obamacare before the administration's 100-day lapses Saturday, April 29th. So they want to do it in a week. Wow. Again. We're going to try it again. Yeah. A senior administration official told CNN that the problem is not Trump care, but intra-party scuffling. I don't think it's having to rewrite the bill. The official said, it's just the total trust gap. This is a bill that had 17 percent approval across the nation. So why do we keep nation. trying to just like sneak it in? Like why are we why aren't we just getting a long process and get it going and everybody talk? And so as soon as they solve the trust gap, we can have a vote. 
Both Trump and Vice President Mike Pence have expressed optimism about health care reform this week. Congress has been on reset since April 10th. They're not even in Washington, so right. they can't talk about it. But we'll return to session on Monday. So let's try to pass health care when their first order of business is to try to avoid the debt ceiling, which you know fund the government by Friday the 28th. Yeah. So we're trying to fund the government. We're also going to toss health care into the mix. <laughs> chaos. A little complicated. We'll see what happens. A Russian think tank linked to Russian President Vladimir Putin created a roadmap for how to tip the U.S. presidential election in Donald Trump's favor. This is from a Reuters report uh, Wednesday citing seven current and former U.S. officials. Two confident strategies, uh, strategic documents were reportedly created by the think tank and circulated at the highest levels of the Russian government. The first distributed in June reportedly recommended that the Kremlin launch a propaganda campaign nudging American voters towards a candidate who would be sympathetic to Russia? The plan was broadening uh, a broadening of Putin's administration's efforts that were already underway. The second document, drafted in October, apparently predicted Hillary Clinton would win the election and suggested foregoing efforts to boost Trump in favor of pushing voter fraud claims to undermine Clinton's power once she assumed office. The U.S. intelligence agencies declined to comment for the story. Hmm. But there you go. They're finding more evidence. And some of this, they, 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 the, the story said some of this is what led the Obama administration to start looking further into it yeah. as these documents surfaced. Interesting. So, hmm, there's such things as Russian think tanks, too. Wow. That's not what I took from the story, but it's no. a nugget. Uh, the world is making its college students wake up too darn early, according to a study published in Frontiers in Neuroscience. NPR reports uh, researchers sampled dozens of college freshmen and, and sophomores to figure out what time of day was best for their brain performance. While most colleges have classes that start as early as 8 a.m., I had classes that started at 7. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Those were bad. The study found classes shouldn't start till after 11 a.m. to foster the best students or best learning in students, according to the press release. Right. Hello. While it's not the same for everyone, people in their teens and early 20s typically have a different biological clock than their elders. It's like making an adult wake up at 5 a.m. every single day. That's ridiculous. Who would do that? Hmm. Um, All of us. Hello. It, uh, it goes, the study shows college needs to offer more afternoon and evening classes, but it's not so simple as pushing everything later in the day. One solution is offering more online classes that allow students to start whenever they're best ready to learn. Yeah. Or they can just buckle down and do their homework. Or they could just go to bed earlier. That too. See, Instead of staying up till 1 or 2 in the morning, <laughs> you're turning into old people now. There's a lot of whiny feeling in that report. Like, I'm tired. <laughs> it's hard. Hey, I took a history class. I, I fell asleep one class period, missed the entirety of World War One in that class. Wow. That was a short world was war. at peace, and then the world was over. Or the war was over. I'm like, what's going on? I, <laughs> I performed average on the test. Yeah. Wasn't that the war that was considered the Great War or that was called the Great War? Yeah. The Great Sleeper. And they did it in one class period. One, one class, class period. As you can see, it was a fast-paced class. Mm -hmm. Kind of boring. And finally, running may be the single most effective exercise to increase your expect or life expectancy, according to a new review and an analysis of past research by exercise and, and uh, premature death. The uh, study found that compared to non-runners, runners tend to live about three additional years, even if they run slowly or sporadically and uh, smoke, drink, and are overweight. So if you're an overweight drinking runner, yeah. smoker, you'll still live longer. Because you run. No wow. other form of exercise that researchers looked at showed comparable impacts on lifespan. And it says perhaps the most interesting, the researchers calculated that for uh, hour for hour, 
running statistically returns more time to people's lives than it consumes. Figuring out two hours per week of training, since that was the average reported by runners in the uh, the study, the researchers estimated that a typical runner would spend less than six months actually running over the course of almost 40 years, but could expect an increase in life expectancy of 3.2 years. No. So that's a net gain of 2.8 years once you take out the six months of running. Yeah. Right? Is it? Do you really gain time or does it just feel like time is going so slow because you're running? You're running. <laughs> but they said that time spent, you get more out of it than you do any other type of exercise. Well, you all, yeah, you do. You get shin splints. You get bow-legged. The good news is that prolonged running doesn't seem to become counter uh, – doesn't seem to become counterproductive for longevity, he continues – According to the data, uh, the, the, two, the two researchers reviewed, improvements in life expectancy generally plateau at about four hours per week. Wow. He says it, it, it goes, they don't decline. So in other words, you run you, – if you do five hours a week, you don't get any no, more benefits. so don't run so five. Four hours a week seems to be that number where it just sort of plateaus on benefit for life expectancy. So have four one-hour runs. Yeah. Or yeah. eight half-hour runs. So running will get us an extra two and a half years. Reading, as we learned, I think, yesterday, will get us an extra three years if we read three hours per week. But see, if you could read while you're running, now you'd be into something. Oh, they need to come up with some sunglasses yeah. that you can They have little read. Book, book holders for your treadmill, but I can't read while I'm running. You can't? No. Why not? Oh, then climb stairs. Do the stair climbing machine. No, but see, that's the point. The stair climbers don't make you live longer. So run up the stairs. Yeah. How would I read? So maybe you have the book bouncing with you. Okay. See, it's not happening. Maybe there's like a book bouncing machine. I have a feeling if we wait about six more months, there will be another study that says people that run are more likely to die. Just give it time. Should I, we run during those six months? I used to love running. I actually do love running, and um, but it's you know. But this month, I I found that eggs are both good and bad for you. Oh yeah. So depends how you eat them. Right. Well, don't eat them in cookie dough, which right. so many people do. I love cookie dough over my eggs. Mm. I love my eggs over my hammy. Mmm. Now you're talking. Hey. Um, <laughs> Other good news, Serena Williams, pregnant. She is. She's going to have a baby. Uh, uh, Kevin Federer said she's going to have a goat. Uh, she's going to, he used the word goat. Greatest of all time. Yeah. A baby goat. Greatest of all time. Yeah. Kevin Federline? No, Federer. Federer. Oh, he's, Federline he's, is yeah, Britney a, Spears' bow, isn't he? No, X. X bow. Oh, X bow. Yeah. X bow. Come on, by keep the way. up. What are you doing? It's, uh, to, let's, let's get into this fun little, uh, Diddy for you. Topeka firefighters rescue a cat caught in a tree, and they also rescued its owner. <laughs> firefighters in Kansas rescued a cat from the tree. They also rescued its owner. Um, according to the Capital, Topeka Capital Journal, the woman climbed the tree Wednesday trying to get her cat, but she wasn't able to get back down. Topeka Fire Department Shift Commander Todd Williams says the woman and her cat were about 16 feet up in a large tree when they were plucked out. Here, kitty, kitty, kitty. What's more, he says, such rescues aren't that uncommon in Topeka. The cat owner's name wasn't released. She's like, no, do not. Do not release 
my name. But the cat's name was released. Yeah. What, this cat seems a little off. No. Was that cat fine? Yeah. That was the one in the tree. Her name was Pickles. Really? Mm-hmm. Cute. Cute name. Terry, what do you have for us? Occasionally I find jobs. Why, why are you looking? Well, no. I mean, we just had uh, Caitlin. Yeah. Our producer was in studio. She's currently looking for work. I'll share this with her later. Maybe she can, uh, can find some opportunities here. Right. 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 So, so scientists are currently looking for 24 fit and healthy, oh, in this case, men. So Caitlin will be excluded here. So 24 fit and healthy men to take part in an experiment that will study the effects of microgravity on their bodies. Really? Yeah. Researchers have nearly completed the first rounds of studies and are now looking to recruit a second wave to start in September of this year. The research is taking place at the Institute for Space Medicine and Physiology in France. Uh, It requires the subjects to lie on their backs without getting up for 60 days. Sign me up. (laughs) They just lie on their back for 60 days. Right. And don't do anything? Yeah. Yeah. And they'll wow. just test what my, what gravity does to the body after you don't do anything for 60 days. Huh. What do you think it does to the body over 60 well, days? Well, I'm going to have a belief that you're just going to sag and all your muscle will disappear. Volunteers will be paid roughly $16,000. Okay. Handed out in installments over four years. Wow. Yeah. To take part in a series of tests for two weeks before and after spending two months laying in a bed. So do they do this every year so why are they going to be paid over time uh, apparently there uh it'll be four-year installments not sure why okay. other than seems a little weird maybe budgets maybe yeah. they're just looking a budget at issue. a budget issue that's good money to just sit there so it'll be three months total okay says the series of tests last for two weeks after spent before and after spending two months in bed who so test for two sign weeks sign me up two months in bed doing do nothing that. and then tests afterwards. See, what they don't tell you is they're going to lose their funding before, you know, they can yeah. pay you. It says the uh, all, all participants must be fit and sporty males huh. between the ages of 20 and 45, so... That's, eh. that's that's almost all of us. Yeah. A BMI between 22 and 27, Ugh. which is hefty. I don't remember my BMI. That's kind of high. It's high BMI. So I don't know how sporty you would be at a yeah. 27, but... Maybe you're beefy. Uh, and you cannot smoke, and you cannot have any allergies. So but when you, you can't do anything? So can you not, like, write? Can you not read a book? They are required to stay lying down with at least one shoulder still on the bed. They can turn but never sit up. Uh, <laughs> this ensures the subjects will never be able to come out of their lying down positions. Oh, so you even use the restroom in this? Because think about it. Volunteers have to eat, wash, and perform bodily functions. They cannot go out, leave the bed. For two months. For two months, they can they and they can't put a foot on the ground for the whole sixty days. So they're looking for fit people. In my experience, or I shouldn't say my experience, but generally, people that are in good health and good that are really fit have good jobs and aren't going to be able to afford to take two months off. Yeah, but you're going to make sixty grand over four years on this one. Fifteen thousand. No, I thought it was sixteen grand. Oh, I thought it was sixty. Sixteen. 
Oh, never mind. Over four years. <laughs> I, I was going to do this. It's not that much money. It says the uh, the test aims to look at the detrimental effects of the prolonged weight the weightlessness on the human body, yeah. which is what astronauts experience when they're in space. Those who are in space for a year experience strange symptoms like loss of bone density and puffy f- and a puffy face. Many <laughs> find it difficult to walk because their legs aren't used to holding their weight. Some astronauts also report their eyesight getting worse. Well, yeah. So they want to figure out how to ways to combat so this. So this really is just a way of killing beefy men with a high BMI. I guess. I think this is another way in which scientists are preparing us to live in a zero gravity yeah. area. So apparently we're you're getting just ready gonna, to go. Yeah, you're just going to be a veg. You're just going to sit around all day. It's time to get out is what they're subtly trying to tell us with all these studies. Oh, man. I was going to do it, but the money's just not there. That's sad. Sixteen grand, but I guess you know, sixteen grand for two months' work, three months' work. Oh well, what do you do? Got to get a new job. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Up next, Heather Johnson will be uh, talking to us about healthy controversy. Stick with us. This is the show where we give you the latest, the greatest to live longer, love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us is Heather Ann Johnson, Hadge, we call her. And uh, Heather is a professor here on campus at BYU where um, she teaches families how to be successful. She also um, has a wonderful self-published book, Family Fun Fridays. And you can find uh, out more about that on our website, familyvolley.com. Family Fun Fridays will soon be followed up by Family Fun Weekends and Family Fun Monday through Thursdays. Good stuff. Heather, thanks for being with us. And today you're going to talk about healthy controversy. Yep, that's where we're headed today. Because we have controversy. Because we do. Because it doesn't matter what you do, controversy is a part of our lives. It's And it could be you might disagree politically. You mm-hmm. may disagree on how to raise the kids. It could be controversy there. It could be with your child, whether you should let them have the car or not. It's true. And normally, I guess what we do is we have unhealthy controversy. That's when we usually need help or the cops are called. (laughs) One one of the two, right? (laughs) We haven't, our household hasn't seen the cops quite yet, but we definitely have controversy. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because I think we're raised to think that our job is to eliminate controversy. Yeah, if good people don't have controversy. Right, and that's um, a huge mistake. Not right? real. That's a huge mistake. We want to make sure that our children, that our spouse, that our neighbors, we understand controversy is a part of life. We, yeah. Otherwise, we'd be cookie cutters and be all the same. And I mean, come on, that's just boring. So right. we want to have these perspectives. It's just knowing how to have a healthy attitude towards having these discussions or disagreements is what we're trying to do. So controversy is normal. It's absolutely normal. And if you're in a relationship that doesn't have it, it usually means that there's somebody who's either always giving in has zero emotion yeah. perspective yeah, opinion. You, have, yeah. you know, usually we have controversy over it. even if it's a little thing like your husband wants Mexican and you want Chinese and you can take a high road because it doesn't really matter and say whatever you want. Right. But we should also know how to really want Mexican and speak up and be able to have a conversation. about Let's it, right? be able to talk about Let's it. Let's please get tacos tonight. So, so how, how do we get healthy? So what are the principles to get us healthy? Sure. So the first thing we have to do is we have to change our focus. When it comes to controversy, we always have been taught to have one focus, and that is to get our point across. Yeah, win. To win, to be understood. 
Our focus has to change to understanding instead. That's the first thing we have yeah. to do. Now, this is a big shift for us because it goes against everything we know to be right. And that's sad because really what it's doing is it's saying our shift has to be selfless instead of selfish. So we have one focus. Our focus needs to be to do all we can to understand the person that there's conflict with. Instead of – you you may think you understand them because I've heard this argument a hundred times. Absolutely. Probably a million times yeah. you've heard it. So I'm just going to have to shut it down right now. <laughs> but instead you're saying I need to understand where you're coming from. Right. And that needs to be our major focus. Instead of do you hear me? Do you get me? Do you understand me? It needs to be do I actually understand them? Have I listened to them? Do I hear that? If we'll make that first change, that shift in our heads, we'll change the fact that we try to blame, that we try to argue, that we try to debate. And instead, we'll be looking to actually open our brains to the fact that there is a different opinion in front of us. Yeah. And we'll grasp onto that. Now, the other thing with changing our focus, our, our main focus after trying to understand has to be to what I call preserve the relationship. It is so funny. We have these relationships in this controversy with people we say we love more than anything. And yet we are willing to throw that relationship out the window over tacos or right. dirt bikes or if curfew is 1130 or 11 for our, you know, 17-year-old. And, and we're willing to just toss it like the relationship doesn't matter. So our focus besides understanding has to be to preserve the relationship. If my main goal when I'm in conflict with someone is that I want this relationship to be preserved, you know, for longer than just this 15 minutes we're talking – I'm going to act and feel in ways that would then show respect, show understanding, and work to preserve that relationship. Right, right. So I, I guess the, the key is somehow you've got to get that top of mind. Right. Because most of us are just already reacting to the fact that you're late. It's ex- So here we go. It's exactly right. And so uh, you and I both know from working with couples that if you can get them to use the right part of your brain, their brain, which really is asking a question that forces their mind to think the right way, which is – what do I want the most in this relationship? Yeah. How can I – for me, it's how can I preserve this relationship with my son, with our girls, with my husband, with our neighbor who is always rifling through our trash because he needs something to do, right? Right. I want to preserve that relationship too even though sometimes I want to yell at him and tell him to get out of my yard. I still have to keep that in mind. So if I ask that question, what actions will preserve this relationship, I act in ways then that – do that, right? Yeah. It's respectful and understanding. That's so cool. we have to shift our focus. We've got to. We've got to shift it. Well, and or just keep doing what you've been doing, but destroy relationships in the meantime and never get ahead. Right. And and never have any resolution. Right. right. We know that if we're not seeking first to understand and preserving those relationships that matter, zero resolution comes out on the other oh, side. Absolutely. So it's what the definition of insanity that's like keep doing the same thing over and over but expect a different outcome. Yeah. So we can keep doing that. We, right. Which doesn't work. So we we're going to change our focus. The next thing we're going to do is we have to focus on validating, not defending. Now, again, we are raised and the environment around us teaches us to defend what it is we believe in, to stand up for yeah. that. If we can lay down the defense and instead look for ways to validate that we're understanding what we're hearing, we've now opened up what truly is a conversation instead of this back and forth debate where we're trying to blame and justify and prove. Right. So it has to be, again, our mental focus must be – how can I validate that I'm understanding? If I really am, I should be able to give them words back and actions back that show I get you. Mm-hmm. I get this. I see where you're coming from. That has to come through validation. Now, how amazing if we looked at our son or our daughter and said, I, I can see why 1130 makes more sense to you as a curfew. 
And I can understand that, you know, it stinks to have to leave right in the middle of the movie when all of your friends get to stay. As soon as I can offer that validation, he's going to take a step back and go, oh, she gets it. Yeah. And as soon as he feels that, he is going to be much more likely to listen when I then go on to say, regardless, you still have to come home yeah, at 10. Right, right? Yeah. But he's going to be open to that because he recognizes first that I validated and heard him. Now, don't they believe it? And this is what I hear a lot. Um, the minute I validate somebody, they start to think I agree with them. Like, I'm totally with you. I agree. That's the way it should be. So it's almost like we don't want to validate somebody because we misconstrue thinking if I validate that your opinion's real, that it's right. Right. And I think our concern is that exact point, but almost more with ourselves. I think in our own brains, it's like, wait, if I agree with any of this or understand it, that means now I've just laid down my opinion. Yeah. Well, just because I understand our son doesn't mean I... I still don't think he has to be home when he has to be home. That doesn't change that. I can understand. And this is another really important point here. We can understand and still disagree. Totally. In fact, every time. Uh, Controversy with my husband, and I joke about it all the time. I now understand why my husband wants to have and ride dirt bikes. I understand it. I still disagree with it. Yeah. Now, what's funny is there's three in our garage right now. Yeah. Right. Uh, What makes it even more funny is I'm accompanying him to the indoor races this Saturday in 48 hours. Right. (laughs) Now, I understand it. I get it. Yeah. I, I get how it lights him up. I get that it's a passion. I get that he loves sharing it with our son. Does that mean that I agree? Yeah, no, not really. Mm-mm. I still think they're dangerous. Yeah. I still think they're an expense that we might not need to have. I can come up with a million oh, disagreements, yeah. but I understand it. Now, the cool thing is when we understand, even though we still disagree, because I now understand, I know how to attend to whatever his needs are. Hence the reason I do it with a smile on my face and find joy in watching him ride. Right. Hence the reason I have a ticket for Saturday's races too, because I understand that that's what he needs from me to support something that he loves. Now, that took five years for me to get to because I was so busy and so certain that because they were dangerous and my opinion ruled, that was the end of the deal. Yeah, and so you would compete on the issue instead of just understand it. It's exactly right. And then validate it, and I can disagree. And now we're okay. And so, sure, you know, if we got right down to it, would I choose something else? Yeah. Yeah, I got some disagreements there. Well, it's going to happen when he breaks his arm doing it. <laughs> it's okay. We've been through. Then we, you're gonna like, we've, we've discussed all that. Yeah. Now, I, now, see, that's an interesting point because if I really understand, I won't rub it in his yeah. face. I'll truly and which I would be genuinely hurt to see him hurt. Yeah. Right. And to know that one, he couldn't ride and two, that these things had happened. So it's amazing. And, and this one I can attest to so personally the shift really does become in mind and body shift. Mm-hmm. The joy I get from watching him ride and knowing he loves it far exceeds any any disinterest yeah. or any misunderstanding I ever had. Well, and if it could be reciprocal, then that would be really powerful because then he would probably ride differently. Absolutely. Knowing what you feel. Right. And a lot of that we went through with this exact example where he then was very conscious to show me that he would be cautious, that yeah. our son would be protected, that he isn't out there to be crazy, but it's because he does love it. And he is very smart. And to be honest, I mean, I was assuming subconsciously he wanted to ride that. He wants to come home just like I want him to come home. Yeah, right. But I, I wasn't open enough to understand That's that. That's huge. So we can disagree 
and we can still understand. All those things can go together. Absolutely. Uh, Let's take a break, Heather, and come back, continue discussing healthy controversy. We all run into controversy, issues where we don't agree. How do we manage the differences? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be right back. Johnson joins us. Heather uh, is a professor here at Brigham Young University and has been uh, so for many years an adjunct faculty member uh, that helps teach the principles behind successful families and the importance of spending family time together. Today she's talking to us about healthy controversy, how to handle conflict and controversy in a healthy way. Part of it's understanding, make sure we're focusing on the relationship. It's not a competition. It's it's a collaboration. We're going to try to understand each other. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to do all those things. We're going to stop working so hard to debate, and instead we're going to validate each step of the way. Uh, and some funny things start to come into play here, and this is kind of our next understanding that we need. It's time to recognize that there is a difference between opinion and fact. And when there's controversy, all of a sudden – our opinion turns into fact. Oh, yeah. Which is really funny because it's not fact. <laughs> it is purely our opinion. Who you voted for, right. that's your opinion. That That is not fact. That's oh, your, it, it's your opinion. Yeah. Whether dirt bikes in our home are dangerous or not dangerous, that's an opinion yeah. I have. I've, I've formed that opinion over the last 20 years of my life, and that's an opinion. It is not a fact. Nine out of 10 doctors, though. Right. Well, and then we go throw out what – but that's still – it's still – and we just found out – Research that's been done for 30 years that everybody agreed on was just debunked. Sure. It gets debunked. It's exactly right. And yeah. and even if we don't or do have research to back it up, we're only looking for the research that supports us. Exactly. The funny thing is there's there's plenty out there that says – Tons of other research. Opposite. And so it's really funny how just in an instant, all of a sudden, my opinion is now a fact. And again, with the neighbor, with our kids – but it's not. So we've yeah. got to recognize opinions are opinions. Now, what goes along with this are a couple things. First, there are more than one really good opinion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, there's a million really good opinions, right? right? And so we're pretty arrogant for lack of – or the best word, we're pretty arrogant to think that our opinion is the only way things can be done, should be done, or can be seen. Right. Right? That's, that's a pretty arrogant, selfish totally. standpoint to go, no, 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 everything stops with me. Right. That, that, that's it. And so this is, again, a perspective shift where we have to take a step back and say, well, wait a second. Your perspective is a good one. Also, your yeah. opinion is a good one. Also, right? so true. we don't yeah. really think like that. And so we've got to change those things. We've got to make sure that our opinion isn't a fact. We've got to see it that way. We've got to make sure we put down the arrogance and recognize that there's more than one good opinion and that their opinion, unfortunately, but honestly, has just as much weight as ours does. And we we use our language very strongly. So if you state an opinion as a fact, it sounds factual. Absolutely. You are an idiot. Right. (laughs) That's a fact. It sounds factual. Like you use the B verb there and that's. A fact. Right. It is. And and unfortunately, it's it's not a fact. It's right. still purely my perspective. So true. And understand, too, especially when there's controversy, our perspective has most likely, especially if we have elevated negative emotions, our perspective has already been tainted. So we are already looking through glasses that are really 
cloudy. Totally. Right? And so we're not even looking at it from from a non-biased perspective. We've already come in with a bias. And so everything we communicate is from that place of bias. Mm. Right? So true. So we've got to keep – we've got to really just be able to step back with ourselves and recognize – and as simple as it is, these are people too, just like us. And and they grew up with feelings and thoughts and experiences that have formed their opinions just like ours. And we have to see them as someone with hopes and dreams and fears just like we have yeah. them. That changes. It shifts. They're just things. like you. They're just like me. And so while I'm here worried about myself, they're actually sitting there worried about their fact that's really opinion too. Right. And we've got to see those things. That's good. So we've got to put that down. Now, we talked about the need to uh, disagree and still understand Another really key point here is that it's about empathy, not sympathy. And we always confuse the two. We always confuse them. Sympathy is coming from this place and we're really good to show sympathy, right? Sympathy is, I am so sorry you don't see my perspective. I'm so sorry you think that way. Yeah. I'm really sorry that you can't think my way, right? Sympathy comes from a place of pity, where even though we're trying to put ourselves in their position, it really is still this, yes, but you don't get it position, right? Now, here's two caveats that help us because everyone always says, okay, Heather, well, how how do I know the difference? How do I know it's I'm showing empathy and not sympathy? So here's two ways or two questions you can ask yourself. Empathy, first of all, empathy has an understanding that their opinions or thoughts are their truths. We have to recognize that. When our son needs to talk to me about something and we disagree about it, that is his truth. It is how he sees it. It is how he believes it. And it is how he's functioned and governed his life around it. Right. We have to recognize – and we have those too, right? There's a lot of things where it's, it's my truth. See it that way. So instead of trying to change them, we've got to recognize, okay, this is truth to them. Okay, I can hold on to that. Take that. Empathy is really recognizing that one point. The other thing that's different between empathy and sympathy is empathy comes from a place of zero judgment. So if you're having controversy or you're trying to have empathy for someone, if you can recognize that their opinions are their truths, and if you can do that from a standpoint of zero judgment, you have gone to empathy and dropped the sympathy. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. When you're no longer judging the fact that they think different, right? We saw this a lot. You know, we can always go back and joke about the election because it's still everywhere, even though let's just let's just move. But uh, we've got this perspective where we very much had opinions that were turned into truths, and that's great. But there's so much judgment behind how other people believe or vote or feel. You know, we got to have empathy for that. Right, right. We, we can't judge. We can't judge. That's truly someone's feelings. My husband liking something I don't, I can't judge that. Mm-hmm. He likes it, yeah. right? And how sad if he turns around and judges me because – I like something he does. Oh yeah, and right? we we it's like we have this we have this need to judge though this need to jump on it and chase it and but it judging it be quickly being able to distinguish it and make it not what you want doesn't bring you closer to anybody. It doesn't, but it's interesting because it then in our minds exonerates us because we found justification to blame. Yeah. Now we misunderstand blame if we tie this in here. Blame is really a discharge of negative emotion. That's what blame is. Yeah. I've, I've got this negative emotion because you're challenging. Remember, my, it's my opinion, but to me, it's my truth. And you're challenging that. 
and I've got this negative emotion. And so I use blame so I can discharge those mm. feelings. Yeah. And so we lay it out onto somebody else. We blame someone else. And in turn, I'm able to dump those negative feelings and feel better about myself. Yeah. Well, like you said, the most powerful thing here is that doesn't bring us closer to anyone. And in fact, blame will tank any relationship, whether it's our neighbor or our husband or our wife, faster than any other thing we can do. Blame will sink it immediately. Oh, totally. And again, we don't recognize it, but we're just trying to discharge the pain and negative emotion we yeah. feel because we're being it challenged. Out, get it out of us like a poison. What would you say, Heather, as we wrap up, what's the one thing we can do today, the one thing that makes the biggest impact on everything we've talked about to manage a controversy with more healthy outcomes? So the one thing is ask yourself, what's the most important thing I can do to preserve this relationship? And I know we talked about it, but yeah. it underlies all things. If that is the question you ask yourself anytime you feel controversy surrounding you, what's the most important thing I can do to preserve this relationship, you will make decisions that then in turn allow you to communicate, talk, problem solve instead of blame justify and debate. Exactly. It will change it. Good stuff. Heather Johnson's her name. Familyvolley.com. Go check out her website. <laughs> Familyvolley.com and you can get more information about her books, her blog, all of her information, all the things Heather does. We will take a break and come back, visit our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show on the home stretch. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. It's that time. It's the time we do the big handoff, and uh, we're listening to a little high-five music because it's high-five day. So let's go down to our good buddies and give them both a big high-five. That was a bull whip right there. We'll give them a big high-five to Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Actually, Jason's here. Oh, is Jason there? Oh, it's Jerem and Jason. I I like that it's high-five day. just gave each other a high-five. April 20th. Isn't that great? Yeah, exactly. It's high five day. The high five on uh, April twenty is such an underrated, don't you think? Form of uh, of greeting and excitement. Yeah, it's almost like yeah, because now we we do bones, we we blow it up, we do all these other things, but the high five was the thing you did. Here's the problem, though, and you <laughs> mentioned that there's so many other things that happen. Like it has become so complicated and stressful as to. As to what you're going to do when you go in for the high yeah. five, do oh, you yeah. then do you do you clasp hands after? Mm-hmm. Do you bring it in? Like it has gotten to the point where it is a stressful thing just to give a high five or shake a hand. We we call it salutation stress. Yes, I'm because... glad that there's actually something that <laughs> yeah. uh, there's you a name for it. Well, like, do you, I mean, and you don't want to be left hanging out there because. Then you're just embarrassed, and then you'll be on a meme somewhere. Because, see, at the, at the BYU baseball game the other, last week, I think it was uh, the Friday game, I took my, my son. He's six, and, and Cosmo came over. And Cosmo went for the fist bump. Mm. My son went for the, the high five. Yeah, yeah. Then Cosmo went for the high five. Oh, my son went off. for uh-huh. the fist bump. And then I came in and tried to do curly fries. It was a mess. <laughs> <laughs> it's so stressful these days. What, what does curly fries look like? Put your uh, palm facing up, okay, and then just wiggle your fingers. Oh, that's curled cute. Oh, motion that's pointing upward. Yeah, that, that actually brought me to tears. <laughs> and it, it that a thing? Curly fries. Curly fries. Hey guys, guess what I did on my show today? You won't even believe this. What's up? I had on some statisticians that helped. These guys debunked 
the hot hand myth. The, so, so in sports, in basketball, uh, yeah, yeah. there's mm-hmm. the belief that somebody can get a hot hand. And then in 1985, there was a big article that came out that was well-researched showing there's no such thing as a hot hand. Statistically, it doesn't happen. But well, then statistically, yeah. these two guys blew that up, and they have proven now that there is such a thing as a hot hand, and it gives you anywhere from a 4% to a 15% advantage. When somebody gets the hot hand. Hot hand totally exists. Totally exists. And, and anyone that's been a decent athlete at some time in some sports has felt that wave of momentum and energy. And, in the groove. Yeah. You, you were just a little – it happens in more walks of life than just sports. Sure. Like you are on, right? You're in. Your in. job or whatever you do. or yeah. what I don't know. Um, you, you are just on. You're fine-tuned. You are – Hot, uh, hot to try. You have the hot hand. Yeah, yeah, you've got a hot hand. Now, here's the thing, though. And that's an emotional thing. Is right? it the same a hot, as being on fire? Is it's yeah. it's on fire okay. uh, minus to, the fire? Yeah. Is it is is it a hot hand or are you just lucky? See, I don't that, think you're. I don't think that you're continuously more lucky. No, that doesn't make any. But sense. But in that right? moment, see, this lucky is, is like in this singular instance, it worked out. Yeah. Like, well, those singular instances pile on each other. That's but, different. But if you believe you have a hot hand, then you might take more shots, and some of your shots might even go in luckily, not skillfully, but luckily. But it doesn't matter because your belief that you have a hot hand is important. You can't, you can't stack up luck randomly to me. Exactly. Roberto Clemente said, Ooh. there's no luck. That's, luck is when preparation meets <gasps> opportunity. So wow. you've you've worked hard to prepare yeah, yourself done for that the, moment. Yes. Opportunity, boom. boom. You're not lucky. You've seized the moment. You just there, seized it. There's Sh- totally luck. I mean, to me. sure you banked it. I mean, you banked the shot. Yeah. But, but if you bank it four times in a row, right? That's not luck. No, that's not luck. Yeah. And like, yeah, yeah. There's totally luck though. Like I, I like the idea from like when you see somebody Roberto. throw like a half court shot and you realize that there's no skill at all, and then they make it. That's luck. There's a little bit of skill. Yeah. Like. Okay, I've got to judge distance. I've got to aim it a little bit. The fact that it goes in. Well, yeah. Oh my gosh. Steph yeah. Curry is a pretty skilled half court shooter. I I would yeah. Don't you Did think you ever, he has a skill? Did you guys ever see the uh, the half court shot? I think it was like at a Clippers game. This was years ago. I'm sure it's on YouTube. As a matter of fact, I can guarantee it is. The the person <laughs> the guy hit like a half court shot, and I can't remember if he won a car or like a lot of money. I think it had to have been money. Because after he hit the shot, he was so excited, he, like, ran and slid, yeah. like, on his stomach face first and slammed his face into the, <laughs> the floor and, like, busted up all of his teeth. See, no skill. <laughs> what in the world? No skill there. No skill So all there. that money went into dental bills. <laughs> oh, that wow. is so sad, and we're laughing at it, but so funny. Hey, um, what's on your show today, gentlemen? Today is a loaded day. We're, we're going to have Zach Selyus in studio. He's uh, back off his mission. He's going to play for BYU Hoop. Shot 50% as a freshman two seasons ago. Wow. Also, BYU signed a guard uh, from Idaho, Ryland Bergerson. Yeah. We'll tell you who he is, what he brings to the table, why his family pedigree matters. That's coming up. Yeah, I don't know, uh, Matt, if you had an opportunity to see uh, this new Jamal Williams documentary that was released within the last couple of days. No. We're going to have the producer... Of that documentary, they followed Jamal around for a couple of days around campus, right around Pro Day, and uh, put it together. It's about 30, 35 minutes. It's on YouTube. We're going to have uh, Sean Morton, who not only is a producer, but also Jamal's cousin. He's going to join us on the show to talk about it. Wow. 
big league. It's a loaded show. Plus, it's a really important day for the men's volleyball team. They're playing in the MPSF semifinals in Long Beach against Hawaii. Baseball has never won in San Diego. They start a three-game series uh, tonight. I guess BYU hasn't won as a member of the WCC. As a member of, yes, the WCC. And then uh, golf, men and women, are hosting the WCC championships right here in Provo at Riverside Country Club. So it's a big day. cow. See how this works? Plus Kyle Benoit at the White House. (laughs) Oh yeah! That oh, did he go? We'll, we'll he show was, you a picture. Of he him, was one uh, of the fifty percent that showed up. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, a certain quarterback. That's kind of strange, isn't it? All right, well, guys, that's an awesome show as usual. This time, though, locked and loaded with Jerem and Jason. Thanks for being with us, my friends. Uh, BYU Sports Nation will be with you in about four and a half minutes. All that joy, plus the video of the guy hitting the half court shot and then face planting it. <laughs> In all of his exuberance. Um, as we wrap up, you know, we, we always like to give you a little empty news, some information that maybe you don't necessarily need to know. Uh, police are seeking a suspect who shot um, at locks in Bend Walmart trying to steal electronics. Police officers in Bend, Oregon, are searching for the suspect that brought a handgun inside the store early Thursday morning in an attempt to steal high-end electronics. Officers with the Bend Police Department responded to Walmart after receiving 911 calls saying a man shot two rounds in the store at these locks. Holy cow. When investigators arrived at the store, they were able to confirm that the suspect fired two uh, rounds from a 9mm handgun in the electronics section. The video surveillance showed that no customers or employees were nearby when the incident occurred. Unbelievable. I mean, wouldn't it be easier to just bring, like, lock cutters in or... A torch? A well, blow torch? Anything you do during the hours of operation is going to cause some attention to be shed on you. But a handgun? Like, yeah. wouldn't it just be easier to wait for someone to buy one and then use your handgun? Don't fire any bullets, but use your gun to get what they just bought? Yeah. Instead, he's firing a gun in a store. Come on! These crooks nowadays... Yeah, once you put a gun into the mix, there's a whole slew of charges that come with that. That wouldn't have come other otherwise. Makes you wonder if he bought the gun there. <laughs> Did he just buy the gun? Oh, I need some ammo. Do you buy the ammo? Then start firing at the lugs. I'm telling you, these kids nowadays, what are you going to do with them? Hey, um, as you know, too, we always like to end the show with a hero story. And this one is a really, I think, uh, it's an interesting one. Imagine you go on a, on a date, a lunch date with somebody, and when you get there on the date, the date ends with an ambulance taking the person away that you had to do CPR on. Well, this happened to Janie Hall, 45, of uh, Joplin, and she was full of excitement when she arrived at the Cheesecake Factory in Kansas City on April 7th to meet her date for the first time after a couple weeks of chatting online. The duo hit it off after they met on the dating site Plenty of Fish. He contacted me and we talked for two weeks. Hall tells people of her date. The man is in his 50s who wishes to remain anonymous. I think you'll see why. He said, I liked a lot of what he said. Social uh, change is big for me. And when he told me about his volunteer work, and the and it really stood out to me. He volunteers at Grandchild School, and he's active with veterans groups in Kansas City. We had a wonderful meal, a great conversation together, and they boxed our food up, and we continued to talk for 45 more minutes, chatting about family and friends. But suddenly, your date coughed three times and lifted his uh, finger as if to excuse himself. 
We weren't eating, so I knew he wasn't choking, Hall remembers. I turned my head to the side uh, to give him some privacy, and the next thing I knew, there were dishes falling from um, the booth. Her date stood up and immediately fell face first onto the floor of the marble floor of the restaurant. He had glazed over eyes. Blood was coming out of his mouth. She checked his heart rate. She began chest compressions. She started CPR, and uh, they called the they called nine one one. It took about eight minutes for the fire department to get there, but when they got there, um, he they were doing CPR on the guy, and the fire department eventually got there, and they uh, after all the CPR, they detected a heart rhythm. Took him to the emergency room, and date was over. Okay. Eventually, though, uh, Janie Hall contacted the daughter of this man, and uh, they got together. She went to the hospital. She met with him, and they started talking again. He looked amazing. He's now being treated for some other issues, and they don't know exactly what caused the episode, but uh, he sa- she, Janie saved his life. And now the next big question is, of course, so... Uh, Can we have a second date? So it looks like they're going to have a second date. How cool is that? The hero of the day, Janie Hall. That's the show, my friends. We're here to give you the ideas, the information you need to live healthier, happier lives. We'll be back again tomorrow. Until then, let's take care of each other and uh, let's be there for each other. We'll be back tomorrow.